Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Nick, how are you, brother? I'm very well, thank you, Chris. How are you? Mate, I'm absolutely awesome. Um, well, you know, I'm obviously devastatingly good looking and oh, I, I, I don't want to put you to sleep at the beginning <laughs> of our podcast. But no, mate, I'm I'm absolutely chuffed that you've come on the show. Um, the stuff that you're doing out there with Hidden Valley Bushcraft. Uh, you've got a new book coming out, uh, Rewild Your Mind. Do indeed, yeah. With a uh, uh, with a Ford by the, uh, I don't know if inimitable is a, I don't even know what that means, but it's the one, the wonderful Jason Fox, the one and only, yeah. We all know and love um, special uh, special boat service, Royal Marine. Had the pleasure of um, of um, meeting Jace, and um, yeah, like I say, mate, apps just absolutely delighted um best place to start when when did you join the marines so we're going to the beginning then uh i joined the marines in 2007 uh june the 11th uh from memory and just like any other training process or you know there is an awful lot of new stuff new assimilation of information forget everything you saw in a movie this is real now and you step off that train at that train station at Limpstone, and I'm sure there's countless Marines that have given podcasts and made similar noises, but it is a feeling of uh, two-part achievement because you, you've passed all the selection process to get to that point. You know, there, there is already a horrendous amount of, of sifting going on, and, um, you know, it, it could be unfortunate to have enough of a, a skin condition like eczema or something. Sorry. Mm-hmm. It could be that you failed one of these psychometric exams. Sorry. Then you've got the what was the PRMC, which was the um, rather delightful week-long experience down at uh, Limpstone Commando Training Centre under the guise of the, uh, the, the the you're being scrutinised by the training team there, who are, are clapping eyes on you for the very first time. Your fitness, your your sort of mental agility, uh, remembering things, recalling things, being questioned on your core history, all kinds of bits and pieces. Um, gym test after gym test, stand up, sit down, roll over, roll over, in the press-up position, away you go, all that good stuff. And now you're at this train station and you're stepping off in a suit with a bunch of other lads who uh, have all got the same initial sort of half fearful half really proud look about them and then you meet uh the first person you see for me was a rather large as in math like well built uh australian uh accent um drill instructor Mm. he bellowed out to us to line up on the uh, train station pick up your bags and off you go into your foundation block which is where you start off learning how to for your half man, half ironing board between the press ups and everything else uh, and learning to do everything in timely, orderly fashion uh, as kind of foundation block wrapped up. Uh, and then if you, you pass a little test where you have to have had everything uh, you're pretty much up all night, um, folding, ironing, washing so that you can present a locker 
to a colour sergeant uh, uh, who will come round and literally the, the white glove, the the uh, the sort of <laughs> number one uniform glove goes on and he wipes it over a series of surfaces, holds it about this far from your face, tells you everything is unacceptable, but you, you might have just passed. And off you go into the blocks. Now, once you go into the blocks, you're moving away from foundation phase and you're into... Um, being put into sections where you're in groups of maybe 10 to 12 of you to start with. Uh, and that quite quickly gets whittled down as, as commando training goes on and the numbers are dropping. And there's a, a photograph on the wall, which I'm sure many people have recalled this before. And it's pretty harsh. They get a, they get a permanent marker pen. There we go. Uh, and your faces are there and it's just one at a time. And they'll take great pleasure in just that's you gone. And as, a, as another one, as another one crumbles where, and, Listen, I'm, I'm, when I say crumble, it might just be that it's it's um, it's not just a mental fortitude thing. It could be that you had a brilliant, athletic, strong, um, very vibrant individual who was doing really well in recruit training, who in the middle of the night threw a Bergen on their back, um, being crashed out from one area where you were sleeping in and you're you know you're putting a sentry position and you're keeping an eye out and you're really learning the crooks of being a commando everything happening at night time and the training team who are the, the enemy will and all, uh, you know will will start up with the blank firing automatic weapons the, uh, the the plastic explosives things are going off all over the place and you've now got to get to an alternate rendezvous point you've only got to put your foot in a rabbit hole with a bergen weighing 100 20 pounds plus whatever and that is that's night nurse and that could be the end of your your journey so there is an element of luck involved mm. um by sheer virtue of the amount of time that you're spending in training which is something like nearly nine months um and the amount of time of that that is spent doing very arduous rigorous training in the outdoors the percentages are high for an accident you know so um so it's not just about you know, there's plenty of people who maybe are watching this podcast who got to week 26, who were fantastic soldiers on trend to, to pass out as a Royal Marine commando and something like that happened to them. Um, that's not the end of your journey. Your journey doesn't stop there. You, you still go on to do some incredible stuff in your life. It's just that that, that door sadly closed. Mate, you nailed it. I, I get a lot of messages from people. Oh, Chris, I got to week 24 and I, my girlfriend finished with me. So I left and I... I say, obviously, to all of them, Nick, no, 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 that's the past. We don't live in the past. No. You know, it is, no. Let it let it, let it go because you've got a, an incredible um, life ahead of you. And so Absolutely. did you say 2007? So 2007, and then I finally finished. I finally uh, hung up my boots in, 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 in that world, in the sausage factory at – 2018 mm. uh, so the other side of christmas 2018 i was medically discharged uh having had a short but sweet by s some people's terms you know there's people there watching this channel with 35 years in the core multiple deployments all over the world etc so so my um career was short and sweet in terms in in so far as i ended up doing something like six uh, sort of live operational deployments um, in, a, in a plethora of different roles in about seven years. And so, so I was out the door pretty much every year on the go. Mm -hmm. And because of the units I was working with or alongside or I was at, my feet didn't touch the floor. Uh, I, was, I was out of the country nine months of the year at, at a couple of points. So um, 
you know, and then sadly, the big machine being the big machine that it is, as much as you love it, doesn't necessarily love you back and the admin isn't there. So uh, I then sadly experienced um, a series of admin errors, whatever you want to call it, uh, which, which then really didn't help the situation I was in at the time. And subsequently, finally led to me being in a naval recovery service center for nearly four of those years, of those 11 years. Yes. We Put should point out that seven years is actually the average career for a Royal Marine. So that's. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. No, same as me, mate. Same as me. Uh, well, I mean, I, I did seven years as well. Yep. I, I joined in 88 and the criteria then was, uh, well, the scenario was it was the toughest point in Royal Marines training You in 88, unless you were the hardest men on the planet, you you wouldn't get through that was the advertising campaign yeah uh, also you had to be incredibly handsome um, oh, which, well, yes i understand that is yeah. you know a terrible affliction that that many such as yourself have to suffer with hard hard <laughs> i had to get that chestnut in there <laughs> so nick tell us um you know i'm i'm fascinated but back in the day when they asked us what unit do we want to go to, I put four two because I knew they were going straight out to Nor- Northern Ireland. Uh, but of course, for you guys, it was the Middle East. Was it was still a case of depending on how you did in training, as I was going through. Um, I was fortunate enough to finish in the top third, let's say, and so I had my unit of choice, which was four five. So I went up to um, uh, Mordor, Condor, <laughs> Condor, uh, and uh, yeah, that was fun. So I'd never been north of Birmingham. Anything north of Birmingham to me still is and a running joke with some of my northern mates uh, is still up, up north, and therefore you're a white walker if you're north of Birmingham now. People laugh at that. But I was born and bred 20 minutes from Brighton Beach, so I was about the most southern man in the unit at the time, serving in our broth in Scotland, and uh, there was there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, barriers to overcome. One, I was a sprog; I was brand new, fresh out of the box, and so I didn't have any kudos points to have any say over anything, let alone my own bed space or what position my bed would be in the morning. Whether it's been tombstoned, someone's lifted up the whole bed because they've come home after a few beers and decided to tombstone the uh, the sprog and literally turn my bed this way, or uh, or whether you know anything. In fact, it was all out of my hands, and so there was a bit of a learning curve mm. when to speak, when not to speak, what to say, what not to say, um, and not many people help you. And I I thought there was something quite humorous in it actually when I first arrived with my. Like this, like this bit of paper, and it had all these um, stamps I had to go around and get. Of course, I don't know where anything is on the base. And you say, excuse me, and someone just blanks you and walks past you because they know you're new. They know you're new. <laughs> Nobody talks to you for about three weeks. Uh, and then you have the infamous joining run, which we'll skim over because uh, I don't think there's a place for that anymore currently in the core as it is. Uh, and I think they're technically illegal now, but it's probably a joining barbecue now where you have a barbecue in the little quadrangled area where all the accommodation is. And there's a piece of grass in the middle, about the size of half a football field where everybody can communally get together 
and enjoy a barbecue uh, and you can get to meet the other guys and the rest of your wider company of 90 blokes of which you might have three troops of sort of 30 inside of and then you will be assigned into a section uh let's say of 10 inside of that so it's all it's all quite uh straightforward in 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 terms of its breakdown and you will live literally live and fight together so you will have like an apartment a bit like when you go to see uni students they've got their digs okay you've got a You've got, a, I'm trying to think as you're going through the door, you had a kitchen off to your right-hand side. The next door down the corridor was the ablutions. So you had a sort of a, a open shower format uh, and then a couple of toilets which had doors. Uh, not that you could ever, not that you could ever close the door because that was seen to be suspicious activity. So door, door open policy at all times. And then you had, uh, you had a, a little storeroom on the left-hand side, a TV room which is where much of the uh, the fun and games used to take place. And then the infamous four-man room down the end for the Sprogs, like myself, who have zero privacy. So you, each corner of the room has a bed and a locker. Everything's open plan. And then two little rooms tucked off um, for the sort of uh, Lance Corporal or somebody who, or the Corporal who's who's worked their way up the echelon to, to have the right to privacy in their own room. Is that is that how you remember it? Is that sort of a... Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I arrived on rear party, so the okay. camp camp was literally dead. Yeah, we yeah. come from all that excitement of training, thinking that you know we're going into the devil's cauldron here, fellas. And we rocked up, and like, there's no one there. Ah, so you just had you just missed the deployment then? Yeah. So I I got there just before, so I, I got thrown into the, the the straight into the the, the beat up training, which was pretty savage. Every every day you were <laughs> you were either on the range, uh, running to the range, running back, or or going all over the country using different training areas. Uh, the paras we used them. Um, they call it the land of nod, where, where they where they do P company, and you go running up and down all of these horrendous little. It's like a gravelly track that just goes on forever around what looks like an old quarry. Kind of Mate, don't them, don't yeah. don't say horrendous. Say a, a gently underlaying. Oh, uh, it was a gently underlaying. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Yes, yeah. not not much more than a. Uh... <laughs> no, no, big big shout out to our our para brothers. Um, so, so they had us doing section attacks diagonally across the whole thing, uh, just to make it make it fruity. Um, and 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 lots of replaying the footage using uh, Northern Ireland's villages that were set out in the Northern Ireland style uh, and, and but with cameras everywhere. So you could go back and you could say, right, you, you were focusing on, on the threat here. Who was covering your flank? Why was no one looking at, you know, and you could break it down piece by piece uh, and see what could be done better. Because of course, once you get out there and you're doing it live, there is no, there is no, there's no comebacks. This isn't medal of honor. You don't respawn at Bastion. That's it. Like it's, it's pretty savage. Yes. So, um, so, so you have to nail down the fine detail and get those base, do the basics to a very high standard continually under massive amounts of duress and touch wood. You'll be as good as you're going to get. Mm. You can't control any more than you can, than you can do on the day of the race. I'll tell you a weird thing, Nick, right? When, when we, because I missed the Norway, we went straight into the beat up for Northern Ireland. I missed the Norway. Yes, I, I saw the born. lads coming back from Norway. It was quite something to see them all rock up in their buses and <laughs> massive, massive Bergens. And within like 20 minutes, 
it had all been squared away and the lads were out on the piss <laughs> or, or going home to their families. I was not, al- true story, I was not allowed to use the um, the galley, so where we go to eat, the, the, the cafe, restaurant, whatever you want to call it, on the base. I wasn't allowed to go and use that until all the Norway rations had been eaten, fr- that were left over, that were crammed into all the cupboards, sprog, you are to eat all of it. So I was just eating these massive high calorie packets of like rice pudding and all kinds of stuff for my first uh, week or so until I was actually allowed to go to the galley with everyone else. So that was part of my sprog routine. Yeah, loads of fun. When we, you, are you familiar with Lid and Hive? Is that? I uh, yeah, that was one of our final packages. That was probably one of the most realistic looking back that they could provide for us. Mm. You know, you had real time amputees thrown on the firing step whilst you're all concentrated on engaging targets with live rounds screaming at each other you know orders are going up and down the line and suddenly you look down and someone's screaming medic and there's a guy there legitimately with no legs and and and, and claret coming out and and you've got to now uh apply tourniquet address that start to go through the processes of getting him back to a central point so that the helo can come in and then he can lid and was 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 probably the most realistic uh training that we got right before we went is we is the first place we also experienced the infamous bar mine um our sergeant major at the time had half a bar mine set up to go off and he had us all lined up against a berm so we could feel what what that would be like that that percussive wave going through you and you know maintaining keeping your mouth open um to, to let to let the pressure through your airways and through your mouth and all that kind of stuff because and he was right to do that he was absolutely right to do that um that's pretty much first day of patrol we were we were stuck into it with 105 artillery coming in at danger close so we we were experiencing that stuff from the off so that was a good call from him uh looking back mm. yeah we had this very bizarre coincidence on patrol in Lydon High. So friends at home, this is a mock-up. In, in our day, it was a mock-up uh, Northern Ireland town, village, what, yeah. whatever. You use live ammunition. You converted your SA-80 to a 2-2 calibre. So okay. if you if you did hit someone, it hopefully wouldn't, you know, could still kill them, but it would be a bit less. So you're on, you're on patrol and... and uh, we come under contact to some uh, sniper or machine gun or whatever, and we all took cover. And I look back and our dear mate, our tail end Charlie, who I call Jock in my uh, original yeah, <laughs> Jock in my books. But uh, Dean, much love to you, mate. Um, I'm sure he won't mind me mentioning his name. But anyway, I look back and Jock had like hit the deck. And he was just lying out in the open, and I, and he was an old sweat. He'd done two tours, I think, of of Ireland by this time. So we all, you know, we took our lead from Jock. And I looked back, and I saw him, and I thought, in my naivety as a sprog, I thought, how clever he, he's he's just hit the deck. You know, we're all taking fire positions and taking cut, and then the uh, DS, do we call them, the instructor. Yeah, comes over. He taps me on the shoulder. He goes, "He's been hit." Yeah, I'm like, "Oh fuck!" Oh, right now it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, but here's the thing: when we were on the uh, ground in Belfast, we come under. Um, uh, I, I'd call it sniper fire, but it was Kalashnikov, so technically a gunman, right? 
who who just laid rounds at all all of us as we took cover i remember our brick commander shouting take cover and everyone's like we ran we took cover behind this small building and when i look back out jock was spark out on the deck in this middle of this park and i've and instantly in my mind i thought fuck me he's 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 not adverse to doing his own thing, Jock. He's just hit. And then in that second, I realized, no, he's been hit. No, it's just for real now. Yeah, he's he's fucking been, ah. So I, I was the first aider, so I started running out, and the team was shouting, Chris, get down, get down. And I'm thinking, how the fuck can I do? Uh, and as I was running back out to Jock, he suddenly looked up, his eyes like a fucking rabbit in the headlights. You can, always, you can always remember someone's eyes in that moment. It's sort of a, yeah, the windows. Yeah. To the his, yeah. equ- his equipment, his electronic equipment, his rifle, it was just spread around him and he grabbed it like this and he come running over and he's like, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. So I'm ripping open his uh, Paris mark. I'm ripping open his, his Aniba jacket. I'm like, Mate, you're not it. You're not it. I'm fucking it. I'm it. I'm it. I'm like, mate, I can't find any fucking holes. Right? Cut long story short. Turned out he had been hit three times, right? His, his one round went for his weapon sling. One round took the antenna off. I'm just going to say his electronic equipment. People will n- know what, what I'm getting at. Sorry about that. Um, and one round had smacked him. Not, not in the fiberglass plate, but like in in the vest. So just, it's like fiberglass wadding or something, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The CBA stuff. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that round had s- spun him around. Hence why his equipment had flown off. The gunman then, had, I was next, I was, I mean, I'm five meters, five meters away from Jock. The gunman then had turned his sights on me and I'm looking at the ground like, and it was like the movies. It's gone. Chung, chung. But I'm, I'm running by this stage. And, what a bizarre coincidence that exactly the same scenario as Lydon Hive had yeah. actually happened. Well, but then that's why the training team are the training team because they have, you'd hope, experience of that type of scenario before and they know that statistically it's tail end charlie is going to be the one that gets picked off at the back and mm-hmm. you know so that's why you're you're doing it the way you did. As for the body position, the way he fell, it's coincidence, isn't it? I mean mm-hmm. that is if you fell yeah. in the exact same way that you'd seen before. Yeah. Well, what on to you for getting out there and, uh, and going and doing it? Cause it's a, it's a tough call to make. What do you well, do? Well, no, well done to Jock, Jock really, because they were trying to pile him in the ambulance and he wouldn't get in. And he's like, no, I'm pa- I patrolled out. I'm patrolling back in. Yeah. And not only that, when we had a little bit of time, we, we, we never got more than sort of eight hours off over there. We, we were just packed with patrols. Yeah. But even before we'd got up in the morning, he'd already got up, gone down to the briefing room, asked the, the OC, can I go out with the next patrol? And he'd gone out. On the next one. Just just get back on a horse. You know what I mean? There is definitely something to be said for that. Mm. Um, but then equally, we now know, looking at, um, individuals that have been on tour after tour after tour after tour, not just talking about me, but I see it an awful lot, uh, that there is an accumulative detrimental effect 
that goes on as well. Did you did you ever get to follow him up? Is he how does he do you know how he feels about any of that nowadays? Is yes, I, I I know I very right. I know very much. Um I hope he's all right. Yeah. Uh, what I would say is he'd seen a lot of the action by this point and in in later life I think like a lot it had taken an effect you know I think I think it's fair to say I don't think you'd mind me saying that I think, I think um, generally we we do tend to mellow you know uh, for, for me becoming a father massive massive uh would I have been able to operate the same way I did Having been a father, um, I can stand there and, and my ego might try and say to you, yeah, it wouldn't have made a single difference. But uh, the way I feel right now, sat in this room at this point, this juncture in this podcast, I'd say, yeah, I would have had that always in the back of my mind. It's 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 become my first thought now. So if I'm if I'm emotionally driven towards a thought process or 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 there is an urge for action, straight away, how will this affect the boy? Oh, oh massively. So. Massively, and it and it brings into question, you know. I love my boy. Uh, um, I I just try and do my best for him, but I can't imagine saying goodbye to him to 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 go on active service. It I, must I, be so hard. It must be so hard. My career had kind of wrapped up and finished at that point um, before finally getting into a headspace where where I could even contemplate starting a family mm. much later down the line i'm 36 now and finn's three so so there'll be some people out there that have already got kids that are like you know 10 or 12 by then started early but um for me it was uh and louise as well being honest about it you know she she was a, a detective constable in the police for 11 years um so she's seen an awful lot of the world um certainly in this district in this region and and been on several teams from doing fraud-based stuff to child protection. And so I think, again, being a mummy and being on the child protection team, I don't know, my hat goes off to anybody who can maintain that role for for, for any amount of time. And um, and I can see how people could use it as a driver, um, but I could also see how people could go, can't do this. So um, that that's my excuse for why she left. I think there is also an element of her having to leave to be a somewhat of a carer for me at times mm. uh, on my journey. So, you know, you'd have to ask her that. Yeah, I've that. actually been on the child protection team I was, uh, as a substance misuse specialist. That's one of your, one of one of your roles, and it's it's fuck savage. You know, yeah, it's easy to sort of start you know, asserting blame and, but, but these parents are fucked, you know, their mental health is. You've almost, is got, it, like it, a, almost got like a tropic, a negative tropic cascade. And I'll talk about the you know tropic cascades later, a negative tropic cascade of, of um, what do they call it? When a certain level of uh, trauma is so say absorbed or passed down through intergenerational, intergenerational yes, cultural yes. stuff. Um, your values, your beliefs, everything that that child is seeing is a sponge from the very earliest of age and will be picked up on. Even, do you know what the other day I was driving him to preschool and I caught him pulling faces at me in the back, in the mirror. I'm going, are you pulling faces? And he was like, doing this face, it was like weird. And I said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm being you. So I was obviously having a little disassociation whilst driving along 
and wherever my mind was going, my my face is visually depicting it, and he's practicing daddy's faces, and I'm thinking, oh my god, oh, I get it all the time. <laughs> my, Where's that come from? Yeah, my son says to me, "Who are you talking to, daddy?" <laughs> right, yeah. uh, 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 just running for a podcast, mate. Don't 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 worry about yeah. it. <laughs> yes, yeah. nice yes. nice recovery, nice recovery. <laughs> Like they, they are so perceptive, aren't they, youngsters? They incredibly so, incredibly so. You know that their their very survival depends on it. They have to learn the language they're immersed around. The reason I'm a native French, fluent French speaker is because my mum spoke to me for my first year of life in the cot in French, and my dad in English. And so that um, sort of sponge eponge effect just mm. you just suck up that stuff. Um, that then has seen me through working with people from all over the world, talking with my hands, gesticulating a lot, um, and has and has helped me talk to people in Afghanistan who are uh, deaf, um, have had part of their tongue removed, and have had to come up with their own sign language, not even an internationally recognised one, let alone that. So you have to work on what they are doing work off of that, learn that language, and then you become the Terp that can speak to them. Mm. And they might be possibly one of the the, the kind of the greyest, the greyest of grey elements in a Special Forces forward operating base who is actually the secret source behind the lads, changing all the pouches and gear because they're on a sewing machine and you need to tell him, I want 556 pouches changed out for 762 pouches um give him a blank magazine for him to measure around and all the rest of it and i want it like this but i want a carabiner here and i want da, da, da. so then i'm off with this translation piece which involves green tea sugared almonds about two hours later drawing on the wall all kinds of stuff how many days will it take doing the sun through the sky one two in three days time how many how many dollars will it cost you know all this sort of stuff and if he doesn't like the price he'll tell me he'll go um he used to go you know, and with that action, what you're saying to me is rubbish, dust in the wind. It means nothing to me. And I say, okay, okay, you know, ten, ten dollars. You know, there's all this that's <laughs> gotta go on. Um, but that was all started, and I, I maintain that with learning a language at a young age, pathways are open. And you can you can do that. I took the multi-language exam test, which was the MLAT. Um, multi-language, yeah, it's 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 40 minutes to assimilate a made-up language. And then um, you ha- you get tested on it. How many were there? Which direction did they go in? Northeast, southwest? Were they carrying weapons? Blah, blah, blah. And you've got to learn all these new words that you've never seen before. And then you've got to put it. And I scored 97%, top 4% in the country, uh, which qualified me for Dolsu at the time, which was like a defense learning school. You could go and learn Arabic and it opened up all the doors to all the other stuff. Unfortunately, the unit I was with at the time wanted to keep me where they were because I was doing a grand job for them. So, yeah, that door was closed. But um, it's all about languages, definitely. Fascinating. I drove to in. I drove a bus to India once with some. Uh, I was when I was a volunteer worker, and uh, I won't bore you with the details. But we we hooked up this Iranian mechanic called Hamzi, and one time we were in a garage in Turkey. And we had a problem with rats coming on the bus. And I said something like, I was trying to find a solution. And I was like, should we set a trap, you know, bit of cheese, get the rat on board, catch it. 
and and in it just like literally in the language you were just describing he went he's ratu 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 yeah biji 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 he means talk talk that was our word for talking was biji 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 is he's saying that the rat is going to talk to his mates and go there's food here <laughs> yeah, you've now created a food source, so you'll potentially get more yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well done, you. Yeah, yeah. Piecing that yes, together, I love it. Yes. So, Nick, what was Afghanistan like? Like for you? Was this uh, was this a source of your later challenges? Yeah, yeah. It really, really, really was. So, um, just to skim through childhood quickly, mum um, and dad are still together today. In fact, dad has just left to go back to East Sussex, um, and. Uh, they both worked very hard, self-made. So dad was a mechanic. Uh, he's, he's, he's wrapped up that business now, but him and my uncle worked together in a garage, had their own business for, for 40 years. Mum taught French. So all the GCSE, GCSE students doing their French, we'd have students come to the house paying for extra tuition to get them through the audio, the, the speaking part. Mum would help them out with that. And she's a bookkeeper. So, um, she, we're a family business. She does the books. Uh, she bookkeeps for Hidden Valley Bushcraft, um, and so it's not like we were we were super plush. And I certainly didn't go to uh, your Eton, your Harrow, or anything like that. I went to the community college. I went to the comp in the local town next door, and I took my chance. I didn't have any older brothers or sisters, so if uh, if I was getting picked on by year eleven and I was year seven you stand your ground and uh, you do the last thing they expect and, and see how you get on. Now you might get put in a bin or, or being a bigger lad playing rugby, you might, you might, you know, start a, Oh, year seven, beat up a year 11, whatever it was. You had to just make a stand, but I was, a, I was a, a rugby jock type individual struggled with school, um, particular mathematics, did not want to be there. Uh, would do anything to just get thrown out of that class academically the school system didn't work for me whatsoever now that is to say that i probably will hold my hand up now okay show a bit of vulnerability i still today don't hold a blinking c in gcse maths i've got like a d (laughs) but there's a cabin 15 minutes from this location in the woods that is built on the side of a slope where every single angle is straight and true and every corner is 90 degrees. And all that was done using three, four, five method. Okay. And using plumb lines and bits of string and all kinds of stuff. I managed to pass and qualify as a bricklayer in my later years before joining the Marines. So I could quantify sand cement amounts. I could give you quotes and I could deliver the product. So it wasn't that I didn't have the acumen to be able to do the maths, but what it turned out was I had sequential, some kind of discalculate around remembering my times tables and being able to do the, remember what I'm supposed to do to the formula on a piece of paper in the exam to get the, the result. It, it really didn't help me. I, I'm sure that there's a lot more help nowadays and kids get given a computer and a bit more time in their exams and stuff. But for me, so my design technology exam, I went fishing. I'm sad to say, um, but fear not. I think from what I've learned in my journey, as we're about to get back to the Afghanistan thing, as long as you are genuinely inquisitive in this world, you're not afraid to ask a question. Genuinely inquisitive, not afraid to ask a question. And there's a third piece of that puzzle because not being scared to ask a question means that you've, 
you've got enough control over your own ego to say, I don't know everything. Mm. Someone else knows more than me. And But you're inquisitive, so you want to learn. There's a passion there. And then what's the last piece? Remain teachable. Remain teachable. 5, 55, 105. Remain teachable. Mm. Those three things, by and large, I'm not saying the educa- education system's rubbish. I'm not at all. Um, I'll leave that for Elon Musk. But I'm saying that there are many ways to skin a cat and find your find your place and your worth in this world. And it can come at any time. And usually what I'm seeing is it comes after a period of hardship and coming through that, through discomfort comes growth. So now we get onto Afghanistan. Sorry for the tangent. That's fine. That's the way my brain works now. It's mm. different. <laughs> um, yeah, week one, day one, as I alluded to, straight into the thick of it. Uh, we arrived at Bastion. We did just under a week of RSOI package. Can't remember what the acronym exactly stands for, but basically think of it as acclimatization. Check all your weapons work. Check all the comms work. Make sure everything works before you get flown in a helicopter ride from hell. Probably the reason I still dislike roller coasters to this day. <laughs> You're just in the back of this helo with your hand on the back of the weapon that's uh, the muzzle is is dug into the deck of the helicopter, which is a Chinook, by the way, one of those great big double-bladed uh, beasties you see chopping, that chopping sound through the air. Um, and the FOB was under 24-hour siege. Um, the enemy at the time were trying to were trying to make one last go at a, 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 a brave and valiant, but albeit very tired force of uh, two para and the Royal Irish Rangers in 2008 uh, going into in, into the winter. They'd had the summer of 2008, which was pretty rough for them, and going into it. So this is our first taste of it, right? So 4-5 Commando, Whiskey Company, we're going in. So off we go. And it is doing this. It's doing this. It's doing this. And you're just holding on for dear life. And uh, then you get there. Everybody just piles out the back into a massive heap you get smashed in the face all these little stones but you've got your goggles on you've got all your bits and pieces everyone's just literally laying laying all over the equipment in the middle of this fob uh, and very quickly uh the helo then can't even stay for any amount it literally stops you get thrown out or was it even still moving and we just piled out the back of it and off it goes um you're met by the sound of a um just always remember like the humdrum of a quad over the top of it all with with uh, trailers and uh, a, a party that have come out to meet you. You get everything off the HLS, the Hilo landing site, and you are gone into some cover somewhere because there is stuff coming in and exploding. And people are literally in little Sanger positions in like little bunkers on the outside of the fob trying to repel this force as you've gone into the, into the lion's den. Uh, first thing next morning, you're straight out on a patrol. So, and I always say that it was my first patrol. Technically, it was my second patrol my first day, if you really want to break it down. First patrol, we went into the city, uh, the district centre of Sangin, to just accompany the governor's son back to his compound or something like that. And I always remember there were a couple of other guys in plain clothes with these sort of G36 fold-out stock assault rifles wearing sort of blue. These are kind of CP ops or spooks or whatever they were doing there. They were tagging on on our patrols uh, to go and have a look around the gain atmospherics and whatever was going on there. Um, I had a mini me, so I had a belt fed um, uh, with a 200 rounds, 200 bullets underneath box, um, FN 
uh, weapon. So if anybody knows that, it's a gas-operated belt-fed weapon. Okay, so you can hold the trigger down and 200 are going to come out in one go very quickly at, ar- at around 600 per minute if you really want to. Uh, so I've got that uh, tucked up there. I've also got a metal detector with a piece of good old-fashioned dark green elasticated bungee on the shoulder, the go-to so that if you get blown up or whatever and you, someone's got to drag you into a ditch, that's coming with you because that's not really a capability you want to let the enemy have, a metal detector. Um, so that was the first patrol, learning how to just do the thing for real, You know, sweeping in the front of the patrol along the rows, up over doorways, checking up over the edge of the door, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff, just mooching around, getting a feel for the place, the smells, the sounds. Patrol 2, straight into the green zone. This is billed as a, uh, called it an acclimatization patrol. I'm carrying, let me try and think now. I'm carrying uh, a grand. So I had a thousand, I had a grand link, 200 on the box. No, wrong, 100 on the box, 200 in the, they hadn't invented a bag for this thing yet. So I was using a respirator bag strapped to the front of the Osprey body armor they had at the time, which made a perfect size fit for a, for a plastic box of 200 bullets on linked together to fit into. So that was kind of my, my renegade setup. Um, and so I was operating with that anyway, did this big box around the fob, very simple, very obvious. Looking back, we're going to go out this way, along this way, hit the canal path and go all the way back in. So, you know, the enemy being the enemy, being very switched on in their back garden, waiting for us to do the obvious, hit the canal path and come back in. During this, I had a whopper of a nosebleed as I'm still not quite acclimatized to the altitude and to all the fine sand going up and down the inside of your nose. I've bled all over the top cover. It already looks like I'm a casualty. I've bled all over the, the PR radio. I've bled all over the, the top cover of the weapon system, all down my front. I'm absolutely caked and I'm you know, your heart and lungs really feeling the weight of the gear in the back. Now, we had been warned off at the start by the same legendary sergeant major in Scottish, and I won't pretend to do the accent, but his his phrase was, when it comes to the slaughter, it's ammo and water. So we ditched everything else uh, so we could carry more ammo and more water. He was, he was intending on us seeking out and finding where the flat, where the line was that we could go from the fob without running into resistance. Where were they going to allow us or where were they going to try and take us on? And of course, that did come at about quarter to five in the afternoon on October the 8th. So that was very tricky. Um, we were in a troop snake. So we were three sections in a line as opposed to what we did from that next day onwards, which is break down and pepper pot forward as commandos do, uh, ever changing our shape on the ground. So we'd operate in a sort of triangular form or then three in a line, or then you could drop one back because we would constantly be surrounded 360 degrees and be taken on. Um, we did all that kind of clever stuff afterwards. But to start with, we were still under the advice of the uh, parachute regiment control at the time, which was the best advice was to keep everyone in one troop snake, keep everyone together have one guy clearing at the front and you can all move along in that, in that safe lane without stepping on anything and anyone losing any bits. Mm-hmm. So we come along up to this canal path. Lo and behold on the canal path, there is a metal signature. The guy at the front there, I think at this point, my section were in the rear cause we've been rotating through. Um, and the guy at the front, 
who I won't name, but uh, he went on to be a successful applicant into uh, our, our special forces. Um, he found uh, what turned out to be a metal dish for eating that they just quickly buried, hastily buried under the ground. So, of course, he's using the head. Imagine that this is the, um, that's the shape of it, and using the head of the metal detector to what we did call petaling. Do you remember that? You'd petal around, and it gave you an idea of what shape it was in the middle, whether it be a mortar shape or whether it be a sort of a round shape. Every time the metal detector would go, Beep, beep, beep. you could really work out the shape of this thing and find out what you know what it was likely to be mm. then if you were a point man you'd have the unfortunate job of removing your paintbrush telling everyone to get down get on the front and you'd have to start paintbrushing away at this ied that's about less than a foot from your face that someone else could set off remotely if they're watching you it could be victim operated i think there's about 17 ways to set these things off to say it's a test of nerves and balls is an understatement. So the point man is the worst job, I would say. And then there's the guilt of if you miss something and someone else treads on it, you've got to live with that. Or you just getting dropped by a sniper, just get shot through the face, and that's it. No comebacks because you're too busy looking down. So it's a very um, sensory overload position to be in, something I suffered with massively later. But I have found a way to, to, to cleverly... Um, reuse that skill and i'll talk about that in a bit so mm. let's get into it um long story short we snaked out in a big line on a knee everybody facing alternate angles there were nine blokes we didn't know this but there were nine blokes hidden behind a wall about 40 50 meters away um it's a wall of about four or five foot high uh very thick mud you know cob which is how houses were made in great britain back in the day you know, you've got, got your classic horse manure stray uh, straw uh, and then mud and it changes the temper of it. it's all trodden in together to make great big bricks that then bake off in the 50 degrees so it was 50 52 degrees i think on the day of the race you're carrying it you're carrying i was carrying i think i met, well, marked it out at 174 pounds a kit i think that's what i weighed once i'd finished with everything um and of course, it's important. I mean, just taking a knee and getting back up is like the world's worst Bulgarian s split squat that you're talking about, but with those pressures on your body and at altitude. So I'm facing the wrong way. And the first burst comes from over this wall to cut a long story short and how it built up. Um, and I actually thought, like you, my naivety from training thought, somebody's just had a negligent discharge. Someone's just leant on their mini-me and fired off a burst at us, you know, in, in a direction. Oh God, how embarrassing, you know, sort of thing went through my head in a split second. I was like, who did that? Looking around and then there was another one and then it all just started erupting. I looked to the sergeant to my left and there's a guy in between us facing the other way. He spat his cigarette out. He just lit, shouted contact, span around on his knee. This was his fifth tour. And it just all erupted and went off. We had nothing to hide behind. We had walked smack into a killing zone. And if you imagine, all, you, all you've got to hide behind are little cut bits of corn where the scythe has gone over the top, corn stalks. That's all you've got to hide behind. There's no, no cover. So the mud around us is ripping up and, and, and there's some massive explosions going off as RPG, a couple of RPGs winged over the top of us and went off into a wall behind us. And, you know, they, they were trying to lay it on from a, like a two part attack. So you had the, the nine guys who were just emptying over the top of this wall, a set of RPK, which is a Kalashnikov variant legs. 
spraying everywhere straight at you from 40 or 50 meters um to all the other all the other variations of clash to cost over the wall and of course in kind we are returning fire and just i just remember peppering the top of this wall up and down but there's so much dust very quickly thrown up and the amount of smoke all of us had I mean, we were told to sort of keep our weapons dry, but no one trusts that. So you put loads of oil in, kind of oil, like a bluey oil coming off. If you imagine, and I've said this before in another podcast, if you imagine like two galleon ships, who's seen Master and Commander pulling up and you just start firing at each other from a really close range, you just end up with loads and loads of weapon smoke. And no one can actually make out with a SUSAT, with a, a four times magnification site or with an open site, exactly what it is you're trying to shoot at. There's lots of flashes and things coming over the wall and everywhere. Chaos. Very bravely, my section commander, Brian, who like you with Jock, I looked up to, he was like our, our leader, like our, the, the main man, gets up on a knee in the middle of this thing so he can send a message because he's been trying desperately, but the antenna is laying linear with the floor as he's, lying down and the message isn't getting out so he gets up as soon as he does one goes straight through the shoulder and out the other side sort of spins him around and he carries on sending his message like he's buying a pint of milk and i've said this before but it's just the medic has clocked it amongst all the carnage and the medic by the way has had seven magazines down at this point he's only got one magazine left a bullet he's got 28 bullets left in that magazine and then he's run out uh we've all had bayonets fixed everyone's got bayonets on apart from me, the mini me gunner, but everyone else, I've got a knife up underneath my body armor. And it looks like we're going to close with uh, the enemy. And uh, I just remember uh, the eyes, remember uh, the medic's eyes, and I won't name him because um, he's had his own troubles, um, shouting, Bri, you've been hit. And Bri just shouting something like, I ain't got time. So it became, Bri, I ain't got time to bleed surname. <laughs> which I think is awesome, um, you know, it, it, when it got written up in the Globe and Laurel, because it was quite a tasty thing. Uh, and then what we managed to do was was put down enough weight fire that we could get up and peel back into a ditch, which was maybe another 40 metres. And then you had the 105 artillery, the boys from 2-9 Commando, bringing in the, the light gun literally in front of us onto that position. And then we'd been, our section had been cut off. The rest of the troop had made it down the riverbank were lined up along the riverbank in a, in a defensive position and we had to get up and just run and make a run for it and then we did a huge amphibious extraction from there up into up through the water course wading up through the water with rounds still landing all around us into uh, the nearest patrol base where we could like treat some of the wounded another guy had been hit it had line big line burnt down his neck where he'd been laying down and the, the round had come in and missed his face and gone in down there and luckily it hadn't gone behind the plate which was another problem we had at the time where the, the bullets would just go through someone bouncing off the plates continually. Uh, it, it had spoiled out, but um, that was our first, that was our first one. We had another three on the way back that day, back to the fob. So suffice to say my, my um, experience range for what I knew about conflict fighting on a rugby pitch is a very different thing. You know, fifty cuffs in front of the the referee, uh, and maybe having the old scrap in a car in 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 the playground or something is not is not the level of violence and and malevolence and stuff that had just gone down here. Okay, this was this was a, like another level of experience. I'd lost all my hearing in that ear from being clapped about by huge bangs and explosions and things, um, and I never felt the same again from that day. 
Now, when we got back, somebody had, and I go back to this metal detector thing, was unable to get out of the ditch and carry the metal detector and everything else. So he'd hidden or cached, that was his version of it, the metal detector. And we had to go back to get it because the CO, commanding officer, did not want the enemy to have the ability to send that off to, let's face it, Pakistan, Iran, whoever was not involved, to pull it all apart and then work out how that works and then come up with something to defeat it. So we were going to have to go back down that really obvious canal path. So we all lined up. Now this time Muggins here is at the front about to lead the company back down and everything that's coming in on this little device that we had that we could sort of tap into their mobile phone calls and things was suggesting that they're waiting for us to come back down. So I'm now stood at the front of the, the, uh, the patrol about to lead us off and just feeling really cross and a bit sad inside that I'm not going to see it past my first day, you know, because I, I, I was just like, I was really disappointed inside myself thinking, you know, it's come to this and this will be my last day because I'm now going to be <clears throat> numero uno setting off out the fob back down this really obvious six foot wide canal path. Um, we got about 50 foot out or I'd already set off out and then they called us all back in again because it was getting dark. And we were in that weird half light between using a monocle night vision goggle and not it was kind of like, do you or don't you? So they decided to then send out a patrol the next morning via another convoluted route to go and get the thing. And they did. And it was okay. I wouldn't say fine. I mean, almost everyone that went out the door got into a scrap straight away. So that was kind of the the, the pace and the tone for the first tour, if I, if I summarized it for you. Um, and very quickly, your discomfort level for life can go from, you know, um, I would now cherish a Sunday roast and I still do Sunday roast, a sacred thing, get everyone together, the whole family. It's a tribal thing. You know, we love a Sunday roast in Britain, especially it's great. It's a, it's a chance for the family to come together, to talk, to share. And it's very tribal at that point in time in my life. I quite quickly became very disagreeable if I hadn't gone out on patrol without having first had a spam fritter. I was like, I'm not happy to die unless I've had a spam fritter, which is about something half the size of this telephone. Pink. Could be meat. Not sure. Probably pork. Not sure. And it's been fried in some oil. Uh, and then I'd be quite happy to go meet my maker uh, as a Royal Marine. That, that's that's the level of discomfort. Of just, you know, you can, you can become quite adept to, um, uh, to, to the, the atrocities that are going on out there very, very quickly. Even at a young age, 2021, 20, you can you can see and hear and take part and be part of and be around things that are going on, which are just horrific by, by human standard and be okay with it. But as we said earlier, it's later on in life when you reflect and you start to break down and you have to really come to terms with being okay with yourself that the role you played at that time in that place was as honorable as it could be. And you made all the decisions based on information you had at the time mm. not, not the ego or whatever else was playing in the background because you know there's um yeah we'll leave that there oh mate you know it's a uh, nick it's a great point because like i've done so many let's just oh, call I understand them, yeah you know yeah. i've done so much stupid shit in my life i've hurt people i've stolen from people i've done this that i i was willing to you know, go into combat and just kill anyone. Yeah. But like literally, and I'm talking to the veterans here now, Mike, you, you draw a line. There's a line there. That's yesterday. We're here today and we only 
we go again only go forward it's go again. really is that simple um, yeah yeah totally so so that was my first experience and then subsequently afterwards things took a different flavor as as uh, I, I was injured on the tour um not that this is something i i particularly pay any focus on to to or try not to too much now the sort of mentor type chap who who uh, i believe um took over from me because we were now down a driver because one of my other roles was to drive a light-skinned uh land rover or a jackal which was one of these new age fancy 6.8 liter super turbocharged engine super cat thing which was actually a bit too heavy and used to cross the mud bridges so the land rover was better the only downside is that and land rover had about this much armor you just had two doors armor plated doors strapped on that finished about sort of shoulder height and that was it the rest was just take your chance you know you're rolling around in a, in a wimmick with a, a 50 cal barrel finishes just behind your head so again if you're the driver you are getting clapped with percussion when that is going off you just want to vomit and fall into the front seat the thing that doesn't stop you doing that is the adrenaline mm. so in a front in, in a forward facing line we had a general purpose machine gun 7.62 millimeter i had a mini me i could jam over the bonnet and that could be on the go. And then you had a 50 cal at the top of you. We were very pointy in a straight line, but if anything came back at us, it's going to go straight through. Did, to... did you have ear defenders? Another laughable matter. So we all had this gunk pumped into our ears before the tour. I'd already been injured and left the ground by the time these things even arrived. And they arrived in the last third of the tour. Um, if you have a set of ear defenders on, let's say big Peltor ones, let alone super Gucci ones that let you hear fine noises, which we didn't have, mm. um, and you're sidling up to doorways and trying to decide whether there's people in there or not, and you've got a grenade in your hand and you're being told by your, you know, come on, mate, grenade in, in we go. And you've done room after room after room. And that last room, as I did, you hear a cough, a female cough or a cry. I can't remember what it was, but definitely female and more than one packed into that last room and took it upon myself to basically just go in and clear the room on my own uh, against the wishes of the rest of the section at the time. But I just, I still think to this day, if I'd have thrown that grenade away, it doesn't even worth thinking about. Mm -hmm. um, but the enemy had done a packed, packed that last room full of people and disappeared through some sort of a, either a tunnel or a hatch or across a field or God knows they had melted so uh yeah that, that last room was just full of when i went obviously when i went in there i got screamed at quite a lot and it's quite piercing you know because they think they're going to die having just heard every room go boom brr, brr, you know all this stuff going on and you come running through the room with all your gear on your helmet and your goggles and you, you know the way you look um quite alien to them and uh yeah so i, I still stand by that was a good decision to make at the time um that could have been a very different story. Oh, it's yeah. hard you hard to know. You've got about the same time it takes a professional cricketer to face a ball and to decide which you know what shot to play, which is I can't remember what it's recorded at, but not very much. You're running on 18 hour patrols, very little sleep, two hours, maybe two two hour blocks of sleep over 24 hours if you're lucky, and you're carrying all that kit and all that heat. It's just unbelievable amounts of duress on the body um you you it's inexcusable but you could excuse somebody for just going in there and spraying the whole room mm. because that's the job you have to make a call you have to make a call and that's that i still think that that's something that robots 
can't do and that only humans can do. You or you'll always need boots on the ground to make those calls. You know whether you are going to or not. Uh, and it's that showing of courageous restraint. They called it was the word that got used in later tours. Um, but it's uh, it's an extremely difficult position to find yourself in. And then when you add in the laws around all this stuff, um, and as the conflict continued, if you were to take a prisoner, obviously under the Geneva Convention, uh, they must be tied to the front. You cannot bag and tag someone over the head. They have to have dark goggles and ear defenders on. You have to be carrying food to meet their religious beliefs. Uh, you need to be carrying ideally another set of body armor for them to have so that they are protected under your care until they can get back to the fob. Ridiculous. Like to, to actually apply that in, in real time in that time in that space in that first tour, just how's that going to happen? Very, very hard. So as tours went on and things happened and my role changed. Okay. So as I said, I've been injured. The guy that came out possibly to replace me lost his life. Uh, I blamed myself for all that for a long time. Uh, the hierarchy at the unit then felt that the same lads who'd just been injured on the tour should be the ones to carry the coffins. So we were all put into coffin bearer duties, which is as hard as doing the job. You've got to see mothers for the first time. Um, Union Jack's coming off. You're wearing blues. You've got to look them straight in the eye. You've got all that stuff. You've got two times a piece. You've got a repatriation and then you've got a funeral. So hugely emotive, massive mix of emotions to, to work through. When you've already got some some pretty snaggy survivor's guilt stuff going on. The tour is still going. You're back. You're having my knee operated on. So what happened there was um, we were pushing north one day, came under fire, uh, jumped across a massive irrigation ditch, landed, but with all the weight in my kit, just shot straight forward onto my knees. So I landed on my feet, but shot straight forward onto my knees into a bunch of tree roots and stuff. And uh, split cartilage, posterior cruciate ligament, and I put a big crack on top of my shin bone, a contusion on top of my shin bone. So that was like, that's your tour. Um, gutted. Went back to the UK, had a load of operations to tidy, straighten, mend, fix, whatever. Mm. Then straight into the rehab stuff to be told that I wouldn't probably be strong enough rehab-wise to get back out on patrol in the role I was in by the end of the tour. Gutted. Mm. Went to Cyprus, the Bloodhound camp, did the decompression staff, never actually went for decompression myself, but became a, a member there, talking to all the battle group coming back, just saying, sirs, ladies, mums and gents, there's a games room, da, 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 two cans of beer. Oh no, the, work, the two can rule wasn't in back then. So I got to see firsthand what happens to a bunch of people who've just done a six month there, who've come back and then they're allowed to have unlimited beer and the range of emotions they've just been through. Animalistic naked throwing up fighting it all happened inside there and then they were allowed home where probably there's a whole lot more to do but by by the military standards they were then decompressed uh from then on it would be two can a two can rule a night in cyprus and a comedian does not cover it ladies and gentlemen for what you've just experienced so that would go on um can you hear that really annoying sound no you picking up on that okay i'm, I'm glad you're not it's uh my house alarm has decided to, to start pleeping at no, me. No, it's fine. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that was a kind of decompression package. And then that led on to me having to make some choices as to which job specification and role I got. So here's where a lot of the jokes start. Uh, the choices were SIGs. I didn't want to be a signaler. I didn't want to run around with any more weight on that knee. Um, drives. I could already drive everything up to hazardous material at the time. 
Uh, I later picked up forklift as well in the core, like everything, B, C, C plus E, you name it. I'd done the driver spec training at Leckenfield near Hull uh, from training to there and then on to 4.5. So I arrived as a ready-made package that knew how to use the mini-me, had done all the bits and pieces. Where I had gaps in my learning were obviously my soldering IQ was low. Um, I hadn't done a Norway I hadn't messed around with a 50 cal 0.5 or automatic grenade launcher. I would be put into uh, initially a fire support group and I would pick up that training before we went, uh, only to be used as close combat troops <laughs> when we got there. Um, so so that all kind of took place. And the decision was, uh, I didn't want to be that clerk, not interested in technology. I struggled with this, setting up this Zoom call, as you know, hilariously. Um, so the other option was chef. Now, I come from French background and they're all patissiers, chocolatiers, um, my grandfather, my uncle. And I'm thinking, well, I was cooking spag bowl with my mum when I was like seven. I like cooking. I like food. What's that? Where's the, so the branch liar, I mean, Sergeant major in charge of the specification at the time known as the branch liar told me. And I quote, if you go do this course, You'll get eight months down at HMS Rally, where the Royal Navy go for their first ever outing uh, to do their basic training. So there'll be uh, eight Royal Marine Commandos on a base full of young naval ranks. So it's, it's going to be quite straightforward, the, the kind of pecking order there. You're, you're going to do this course, which is three years of civilian uh, catering training, hospitality, blah, 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 condensed into eight months. So you're just going to be in a classroom, smashed to death every day, 10 hours of pastry meats foods hygiene exams whatever at the end of which you can go to the unit of your choice and i thought can i go to pool sir can i go to pool so i can work alongside british special forces unit that's down there okay i can organize that i thought oh that's a pretty good deal and he said and if you do two years i'll have you as a corporal i thought god two years straight to corporal got a tour under my belt now and what's not to like Hell yeah, get me down there. So I did the course, got to pool, feet did not touch the ground. First week I was there, that's where I met Mr. Fox. Not that he really would have, um, you know, I would have been Sprog again. <laughs> Brand new guy, new unit. He was, a, 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 I think, a sergeant or a team leader, a TL or something at the time. And we were all off to Belize, to the jungles of Belize. I never did a single day in the galley. I never cooked in the actual, on the base, because it's um, it's a civilian contract. It's um Sodexo or Compass or one of those other groups have got the contract for it. So and it's food. fucking shit. Sorry, I just need to say it, that. It's pretty bad food. So you go, you go literally out into the field, wherever the squadrons are, that's you getting attached. So there'll be a mechanic, vehicle mechanic, there'll be a Royal Marine, the chef will be a Royal Marine. The signals guys will have their own special forces communicator selection course. So they're kind of like a, they're basically, I, the way I looked at them, the same thing. You're in a hedgerow, both firing from the shoulder at the same person doing the same thing. One of you's got SIGS kit and has to relay that. But you're on different pay bands and scales and, and the selection process is slightly different. And there's a lot, there's a lot to it in the in the wider schemes of the machine. And it really opened my eyes to how things work down there. Um, so I ended up doing subsequently two rotations worth. I should have done two years and then gone back to brigade. Uh, it does become a face fits place. And um I sort of put my head down. I'd done my best in, in the role I was in. Uh, anything else was asked of me, whether I needed to fetch, pick up stores, 
carry gas bottles, gas and air down to the water's edge for them to for diving, folding up ribs, helping people do whatever it was. You end up being like a dog's body. You just jump in and, and you're a team member and you jump in and the level of maturity down there was another scale again. And there was a lot less yes or no. So I think I saluted someone the first week and I got absolutely brought down to a level about saluting people. So I never saluted another person for like the rest of my career pretty much until I was in the recovery center at HMS Drake. And then I had such a loathing for authority that I would deliberately not salute anyone at that point. I was done anti-authoritarian to the eyeballs. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was kind of pool was very uh, eclectic. No, um, unorthodox, unorthodox, mm. which as time went on suited me perfectly and really helped to develop an entrepreneurial spark, which I now apply in the world of business with Hidden Valley Bushcraft uh, and with the work I do with the Woodland Warrior Program. So that's it all. It all came good in the end, but it did see me going out on all kinds of deployments to all kinds of weird and wonderful places the brigade don't get to go to and take part in a wide variety of roles, including using my language skills. And I can't go into any depth on that here, but suffice to say there are many ways to skin a cat. And if your face fits, your face fits. And that's all we'll go there with that. But um, yeah, very interesting stuff. Very interesting stuff. And it, and it all brought a certain flavor to the way I was feeling um, about things. And it definitely brought a lot of it to the fore so entirely service related with the exception of uh, a civilian trauma between tour number one and two and my mum very sadly going through cancer while I was away on some ops somewhere um had to go back and then go through the whole sitting with her through chemo uh, radio and chemo um watching her lose her hair and go through all that stuff it's, it's pretty pretty hard on the on the psyche when, when you you've gone from being sort of at the absolute tip of a very pointy, already very pointy spear. And then suddenly you're, you're brought back to earth and, and, and having to get your head around possibly losing a primary caregiver, uh, a, a family member. Um, it's like a washing machine. You just get smashed about this rotation cycle of being on different continents. And I'm looking at your map behind you. So uh, Guatemala, Belize, uh, Oman, um, Norway, um, Afghanistan, in any one year, just boom, 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 boom. And you just have this little little bag on you, little um, canoe bag, dry bag with your yellow fever, you know, your African continent stuff, your, your uh, potentially a couple of passports, all kinds of stuff happening in this little bag. And you just blink of an eye, you're gone. And so you you live your life in a very reactive manner. And anybody who's a shift worker watching this, uh, NHS emergency services, in any role who has a designated, you spend your life constantly reactive to the role that you're giving so much to. And you're not being proactive at that point about waking up on your terms, waking up on purpose, with a purpose, getting your headspace, walk in with your Crocs, with the dog, with the coffee, mm. planning out your day and then getting as much done as possible, journaling that on a list at the end of the day, all the, all the wonderful positive stuff I do now, which keeps me grounded and in good stead. I didn't have any of that. I was just literally whacking my battery life from max to nothing to back to max. And just like, you know, like any battery, it's only so many times you can do that. Mm. So come tour Afghan number four, Operational employment number six. 
load of stuff happened. The boss died um, very sadly. A load of other lads got shot up really badly. It all gone horribly wrong. I am in a very forward location on the sort of foothills to Pakistan border type area, uh, the Hindu Kush, and a psych nurse got deployed. The first time in my career, I actually got to speak to a psych nurse that had been assigned to us on the job as as a result. Up until that point, it was, I think I'd been, I'd gone through bloodhound camp decompression once out of those six deployments. Um, Yeah, again, it was all about slipping through the net, you know, time and again. So I sat down, spoke to her. And at that point in my life, I was absolutely physically massive at a resting heart rate, 38 beats a minute. I was just training three times a day. I'd been, I'd been in that location for seven months without any R and R I'd been there for two squadron rotations and I had a huge handlebar moustache. My hair was out here. I was wild. I was making up my own rig, my own uniform. Um, in terms of weapon carriage day to day, I would have a little compact SIG 229 in a little leather pancake holster down the side of me. I had about seven or eight Afghans working underneath me that I would be in charge of there, how they, you know, who's going on leave at what time and very much doing a troop stripey's role, running all the accounts and all the paperwork for for the food, for the for feeding strength, including the, the food that needs to come in for the attack dogs, for the for the guys to, you know, all sorts of stuff. And I'm still a Marine. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still a Marine at this point. So so the, it was weighing heavily, all of it. And I knew I was having, uh, having issues the first time I'd really, really, really noticed it. And actually, when I look back, it was, it was clear from the first tour, I was having disassociative episodes on the booze. And that's how that other trauma happened with the young lady, which I'll tell you about in a minute. Mm. Um, and I had a dream one night where I'd, I woke up and I could feel the bang. Bang was in my head. I could feel it went through my whole body. And I woke up and reacted like that from it naught to 100 that the main gate had just gone up. I put all this link over myself. I picked up the GPMG because my alternate role there was uh, when I wasn't doing my primary job, I would be force protection um, or picking up backlog roles from the um, the lads would go and go out on a press on a job somewhere. And we still had a uh, obligation to train the then special narcotics force or whoever it is we were mentoring. And so I would then be teaching these guys how to go through the killing house, swapping the weapon into the shoulders, different, you know, fight from the doorways and all the kind of dark art of, of the CQB and CQC stuff that I had then been taught from our lot. And then I was then basically filling a space uh, under a parachute regiment, so SFSG, Special Force Support Group, uh, Corporal, um, great guy. And we got on like house on fire. So we sort of backfilled some of those spots, taking their, their next door, their, the indigenous uh, junior command course through uh, their CQB package and doing live section attacks up the ranges and stuff like that. So I would, I'd always be doing stuff, you know, never stopped. Um, but training. Nick, can, I, can I just ask, cause I, I think people at home might be getting a bit lost. What, Sorry. It, because one minute you, you were saying you were trained as a chef, now yeah. yeah now it so seems you're you're a commando first aren't you so commando first yeah. and foremost and then you pick up a job spec that fits in around that so if you imagine if you dropped a bunch of bootnecks off royal marines on the top of a mountain somewhere middle of nowhere and amongst you you have a wide variety of skill set 
if a vehicle comes back in and all the doors are all shot up and the radiator's full of holes, the commando-trained vehicle mechanic will be there mending, fixing, welding up through the night, making a new frame for the 50 cal to sit on, as they often did, for then us to use that vehicle the next day. Mm. The chef would be uh, potentially taking a load of foreign dib-dabs in money, whatever currency that was, buying goats, literally doing the whole process, creating food from nothing on the spot. At any point, if the fob comes under attack, you can shout at anyone from the chef to the vehicle mechanic, get on that 50 cal in that position there, and they're going to know exactly how to operate the whole thing. You know, everything's going to just take place. Um, so we are very much a standalone force in comparison to somebody who relies on uh, various specific niche army roles who maybe haven't had that level of infantry training. Um, and so if you were to put those guys in a different position, I'm not saying they wouldn't have a go. Not, not one, I'm, That's not what I'm saying. They wouldn't be as proficient or able to join in on patrols in the same way. So, yes, yeah, so that's what I'm talking about is the alternate roles that you end up picking up. And are you still having to cook the food? Is, is Yeah, so I would basically get up in the morning, bang out a brunch on the hot plate. Lads would come in around 10 o'clock, smash everything off the hot plate, would come down at about 11.30, and then uh, there'd be another bootneck chef there. I'd hop over to him, help him do a bit of prep, and then evening meal would go up at around I don't know, 6 o'clock, mm-hmm. and then that would come down. Anything else in that day around that? You're, is- get- you're getting well stuck in. Oh, Absolutely, because there's only 40 of you like all in in a tiny location with 500 indigenous personnel next door and all that separates you is a piece of Wrigley tin um, and you're in something the size of maybe to be generous to football fields and you're there for seven months. It's like doing prison. It's like doing bird, like mm. in the way that it kind of, you step outside of that, someone's going to try and set your head off. So it, yeah, it becomes quite a quite a thing. Jeez, Nick, blimey. So I ended up quite burnt out. So I came back to the UK. Uh, the psych nurse said, promise me you'll come see me, hand all my weapons in. I asked, She asked me three questions, and I can't remember what they were, but I was crying my eyes out, just hand, just uncontrollably sobbing. And she was like, that's you, go and leave. Now, I was owed uh, 101, I think I was 101 days out of bed. I was so far over the allotted time that you're supposed to be deployed in any three-month, three-year rolling period um, because I hadn't really had that level of protection. I wasn't didn't belong to a single squadron. A single squadron would have their own clerk. They'd have their own uh, signaler. They'd have their own, um, but they wouldn't have their own, say, potentially like vehicle mechanical, MT or chef. Or So we were kind of used, whoever shouts loudest, and you're just, there's about eight of you and you're just getting ping-ponged all over the country all the time. Um, and that was quite hard. But those those two little, I say two little, I can't play it down. Getting roped into alternate roles as well caused friction because now suddenly I am not one of them and I'm not really, I could come back and it'd be like, oh, you know, F me. Where have you been, James Bond? Because I'm covered in um, civilian clothing allowance clothing and all the rest of it and i've been given all this gucci stuff and i have been away for a while somewhere and then i've come back and i know because i have been instructed not to tell anyone anything and that's as far as it went so then there's friction here and then there's friction as long as i don't say anything there's no friction here and you don't want friction here so it was it was very very hard for me um 
And then with what was going on with my mum, the fallouts with hierarchy started to come thick and fast as I quite quickly just zoned out into what I felt was important in this world, which was no longer whether you, how many stripes or pips or whatever you had on your shoulders or how long you'd done in the core. I started to look at, very sadly, I started to look at the Sergeant Major as just a, a lifer, like a, a fat bloke in uniform who, who, you know, he's got loops and pips and stripes and behind him, but it doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Like I was just totally on a different plane at that point. Um, in terms of the trauma thing as well, the young lady, so I should probably spin this the young lady between my first and second tour who had a very severe accident, um, a freak accident with a mirror in a lock-in in, in a pub. Now, you know, you said about coincidence, right place, wrong time, albeit your mate Jock, you were both training to do the same thing. I'd, I'd, I'd got home on leave to my first and second tour and I'd gone drinking, unlike me, on my own, didn't care, pull pin. I was using alcohol. Uh, I was self-medicating with alcohol at the time. I got thrown at the pub and I was on my way back up the hill just for end of end of play anyway. And it was the last pub for me to go to before I had to walk three miles with no country lanes, uh, no um, head uh, street lamps in the dark, down the villages, back to the village I'm from. And I looked in the windows and I saw all sorts of scantily dressed girlies, uh, a barman who I knew and, and they were just having a great time in there. So I knocked on the window and was like this. Somebody recognized me and went, Oh, he's back on leave. Let him in. I managed about a quarter of a pint and passed out. Don't remember much more. It's on a sofa, like catching flies. And the next thing I remember was screaming, somebody shouting this young lady's name and Oh my God, do something. There is so much blood everywhere. I was like, so I sort of like had the rest of the pint thrown over me do something. So I've like shot up into life, gone running into this downstairs toilet, which is a disabled loo, which is by far the cleanest maintained better toilet of the entire establishment. I can see why she went in there. And I, I understand that by pulling your knickers up and uh, being a bit wobbly on her feet and having drunk knocked into the wall length mirror, which had been placed legally far too close to the toilet fell off of its mount, hit the floor. A shard had gone into her femoral artery, severed it, and she was lying on the floor. No word of a lie. It, I mean, I'm stood in this room with a 14-foot ceiling. It was easily seven or eight feet, spurting against the wall and running down. Massive pool underneath her. Uh, she is leaking fast. So I then had to subsequently launch straight into Category A um, blood loss drills and get all, all of the screaming people out of the doorway, try and get 999 on the phone, try and do a handover, try and assess the injury. Mm. In opening up, the, I was basically stood on her chest to stop her getting up, leg up in the air, had a quick look initially, couldn't find the end of the artery. It stuck my finger there. I was looking for the end of the artery to be able to pinch the thing off. It had already retracted down a fair amount. Um, my whole face went red. Now, from her perspective, and we only had this conversation this year, something like 11 years later, we had the my version, her version. They're very close. Mm. Um, there's only like language and certain words used that I didn't quite get that she said, well, you were muttering in phonetic alphabet or something, and then you were on the phone giving stats of my my readings down the phone. So I, I stemmed that with my hands for 19 minutes until the, the purple nitrate gloves of the medic took over, and my hands were stuck, stuck locked on in this position, and I had to, the barman had to help me open out my hands. <laughs> 
And she'd lost 49% of her blood up me, up the ceiling, everywhere. Um, she was going into hyperbolemic shock. She was put in an induced coma and she was out for the count for a couple of weeks. Um, I scrubbed and cleaned all of the toilet. You can imagine the, the imagery, white tiles, white floor, white everything. Lots of blood, lots of snotty, coagulated, jelly-like claret all over the floor. It's just awful. Um, and and I was soaked. My jeans were knackered. My shirt was completely drained. I burned my clothes. And my Timberland boots were a write-off because uh, this is like circa 2009-10. And um, I, I cleaned everything and I walked home. And that feeling of freeze. I, I was starting to have a cold injury. By the time I got home, that freezing cold feeling on my chest of my T-shirt uh, at three or four in the morning, um, walking back three miles in the country lanes, my, my clothes were frozen. And I remember having a shower, just all the blood in the in the shower, and and then going to speak to my mum to say, this young lady who we know very well has had a horrible accident and I hope she's okay. She's in the ambulance and I did what I could and blah, blah, blah. And then I went and passed out. So there's that. there was like a big visual, visual trauma thing that happened there. It's been 11 years. She's had 60 plus operations on the leg. And this year she became a single leg amputee. And she's already been in the hospital a couple of times this year with septicemia and some other bits. That leg continues to plague her. But the fact of the matter is I now know, and the way I now feel about this from therapy and all the rest of it is I saved her life. Mm. At the time it was getting linked to all the guilt I was having from the first tour. Okay. And the meaning I had made around that by the time I'd finally got into therapy okay, in the Naval Recovery Service Centre was it was my fault that the injury had happened to her in the first place. Things get twisted, you know. So that was, a, that was, a, that was an experience. Um, but coupled with the mum's thing and all the stuff that happened on the tours, you know. Uh, at one point, the guys were out on a push and we had 104 children split into two call signs. The Navy SEALs had some of them. And we had the rest. And... Um, Basically, the enemy had gone into a school because they were learning to read and write and sprayed them with a homemade crop spraying equipment. So we're talking a, a chemical gas attack at that time. Uh, and four of them were dead. And the rest were, it was a, it, it's all attacking their respiratory systems. And we just felt so helpless. There were 11 of us left in, in, in our location and the rest were all next door. These kids were getting shoved under irrigation taps, um, anything we could, every single one of the hospital beds, CPR going on. It was absolutely awful. So I, I would say in my seven-year career, in, a, in lots of varied roles, there was an awful lot of either blunt force nastiness or high high pressure, high level stuff going on. Uh, and like anyone, you are only human. So by the time I got to the recovery center, I had blue tack over the phone, over the speaker, over the camera, I was completely not away with the fairies, hyper vigilant, uh, very physically strong and capable, and just on all the time. Didn't know how to switch off, couldn't switch off. And it was awful. So it's taken me a long time to get round to giving myself the permission. By the time I left that recovery center, I'd set up a business doing the thing I love in, in, in the environment I absolutely love to be in every day of my life and I help other people who've gone through elements of their own version of the journey. It doesn't matter how you got to where you got to the point is you're there. And how do we move forward? As you say, so rightly, how do we move forward with that? 
Does so the girl realise you saved her life? Uh, yeah, we we are we are we are friends. I've actually written the full extract of that is in the book. Mm. The first part of the book, I've just gone through the main gritty bit, contextualised and how each part of that left me feeling and why, because I, I would like the reader to be able to see elements of themselves and their journey in the way I was feeling. How you get there, by and large, doesn't matter. You know, Remember that we choose our friends in this life, not our family, and that a lot of people, unfortunately, family life is not great for them and they haven't got a choice in that. So that might be the start of their journey. I was very fortunate. Mine didn't happen till 2021, uh, till I was 21, sorry. But, you know, statistics are, you're not going to make it from zero to 40 without experiencing something major in your life. Uh, and it's only when that really comes on that you'll, you'll have then the, the, a fight on your hands. But if you can come through that, if you can get past that, and if you can find a way forward, you'll be, you'll be a better person for it massively. Yeah. Yeah. There's no such thing as a bad experience. There's just experience and we got to stop labeling stuff as good and bad. Bad weather. Talk about that in the book. Bad yeah. weather. We're not going out today. Yeah. You've never had better technological fibers at your disposal. Even you go down to pre-marche, you buy your regatta coat. Okay. Whatever it is, get outside. It's got a hood. Nobody ever went for a 15 minute headspace walking the outdoors and came back feeling worse. The situation with the girl, were you still serving then? Or Yeah, yeah. I was literally in my second year of service. Wow. So happened. Oh, I'd just come back off the first tour. I was between carrying multiple uh, coffins and funeral duty, uh, um, coffin bearer and firing party duties. Um, I'd gone home on leave for a bit of respite, pulled the pin straight on the source, experienced that, went back up to the unit, Thought nothing more of it. Got a phone call from a lawyer or solicitor or somebody uh, representing her some months later saying, did I have any footage or anything? Or uh, could I give a statement of exactly what I remembered piece by piece? That whole process is now playing out. I don't really know what the outcome is, but yes, lovely, lovely girl. Um, she's not been able to get on with her life because of the severity of this injury. Um, things like getting married, having kids. I hope now as a single leg amputee, she's moving forward and she's she's getting on with all those things that she wants to do. But we stay in touch. We still stay in touch. And we're sort of, I, I reckon we're sort of now probably forever entwined to a degree. Mm. You know. Gosh. Yeah. Um, so thanks to the level of medical training I'd received prior to that tour and the um you know, confidence to a degree that you, you gain from being a service person and, and and that kind of very, well, something to be done. That must be me then. Um, you know, I got stuck in. Mm. Uh, but every second counts. If it's something like an arterial bleed, it is, there's no joke. You've got to find a way to maintain the pressure. I remember talking to her in French as she was one of my mum's students who had been learning French GCSE um, to, to get her to zone out to everything else that was going on and, and, breathe and we just did a load of breathing stuff um whilst i was trying not to flap and telling her it's really not that bad i mean it's quite it's a good one but not that bad yeah i knew i knew it wasn't very good mm. i think towards the very end of it just before the um paramedics arrived i was in a quandary as to whether to let go because i had double thumb pressure just below against the bone pin i pinned the artery shut 
with all my body weight. And uh, I'm sad to say I wasn't wearing a belt. I now will not leave the house ever since that day forth without having a belt on because I could have used it as a, as a tourniquet. I'd gone out with wet jeans on because I didn't care about myself or anything. I'd just like jeans, though they're still wet, don't care. Put them on straight out, straight on the source. Um, there you go. So lots of takeaways from that experience. Uh, and then, as I said, each tour just had a new flavor, but not getting the downtime in between because you're then constantly zigzagging, ping-ponging all around the world, doing different things um, and being used in different roles. So the interpreting thing came a little bit later on mm. when we started working with French counterparts like the uh, Commando Hubert. Commando Hubert are down in, uh, uh, well, I won't name where they're from, but in the, in the south in the south of France, they have a unit there of about 90 blokes. Uh, and I think their equivalency to our boat service, I think something like their their selection process is something like nine nine months of just the dive package alone <laughs> to uh, to be proficient in spending eight hours under the water at a time doing stuff. You know, they're, they're pretty switched on. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, so my, my role would have been things like weather reports and making sure that our boss can talk to their boss and terp stuff that then led into a whole world a whole world for me mm. but yeah the learning curve was like that and mm. so how how did it come to a, a head neck what what was the that final tour that final tour um and i got married 19 days later very much not fully in my right mind suddenly i've gone from seven months up a mountainside to coming back getting married going on a on a honeymoon and stuff and I just remember the illness, the the people quite often talk about physical, um, mental health. Have you ever read the book, The Body Keeps the Score? I mean, no. the, the, the amount of bright green gunk that was coming out of my nose on part of a honeymoon um, where I think my body was finally coming off the ceiling from the tour. I had the worst head cold, couldn't taste a thing. I mean, people talk about COVID. I haven't felt anything i've been very fortunate through this whole covid thing i'm in the outdoors every single day and i've not experienced a peep of it even though i was face to face all the way through lockdown with uh, our very frontline key workers uh, nurses on the acute respiratory wards police officers fire service through the woodland warrior program the work i was doing i ramped up what i could provide for people as respite in the woods all through that that period never had a peep the only thing I can say is when I saw the symptoms of people talking about what it was like, that's what I felt like when I came off that tour in 2014. Ruined. Um, couldn't taste a thing. I was in America uh, on our honeymoon having the hottest hot sauce on these like shrimps. And just the guys were like, no way, man. How can you eat? I just couldn't taste a thing. So, <laughs> and I think that was actually stress. That was actually stress coming out of me. Um, neurological twitches, your eyes are twitching away, mm. tinnitus, you name it. I was on the ceiling with the burnout um, and it went on for a long time. They tried acupuncture, hydrotherapy, EMDR, uh, CBT. I did a, a, a load of NLP as well. And everything has made a dent, but nothing more so than the environmental every single day, taking a poorly fish and putting it into clean water. And the cleanest water that any one of us can possibly be in is the environment from whence we came outside, mm. outdoors, amongst the trees. The evidence is there. 
You know, we know about the phytoncides, the organic chemical compounds released by trees and plants and how our immune systems respond to it. They've done cortisol swabs the inside of people's mouths. Japanese have for years been studying Shirin Yoku, the study of forest bathing and the effects on the body. We know we know it, but we just don't apply it. You know, we all work long into the night under artificial light. Uh, far past our circadian rhythm, the rhythm of which you're designed by the sun moving through the sky. You're supposed to get tired towards the end of the day, but we naff that off and have another coffee and forge on. So, you know, there's no wonder if you're living a very unnatural lifestyle, you're a human, you're an animal, you're no different. What do you think is going to happen? So when your mental health clearly is coming apart was it you that recognized it or was it other people that flagged it to you in the military i was too proud too arrogant and too um indoctrinated into a male uh high performance driven mindset that it's a weakness um i was your epitome of at the time exactly what happened to me which is it he's broken get me another one (laughs) I was, I was exactly that, you know, I was, it was all about the mission, the mission first, whatever it took to, to get those lads to go out and to do their job, whatever, you know, whatever I was up to, um, that was it. That was the primary, primary thing for me being the fittest, fastest, baddest, best individual you possibly could be all about performance, nothing to nourish my own soul. Everything was React, react, react. Nothing, very little proactively on my terms for me to be able to call my own or or do things under my own steam. And I hadn't really had a requirement to do that. It was all about pleasing others. It was all about uh, being part of the brotherhood, etc. Now, you only really understand the brotherhood, the true meaning of it, when you're down. And there's about five lads, all the guys you went through basic training with, who really give a monkey's. And so those five lads, plus the lads I went through base training with, are pretty much the only bootnecks I still speak to because they get it or they get me. You know, um, a lot of people talk about the bond forged through war. If I could recount to you how many members of the existing whiskey company from 4-5 Commando from that time have horribly come unstuck, are struggling with their lives, are struggling right now, are still feeling the repercussions of that tour. Um it's not many. And if there are, and I'm not offending anyone, probably some of them are still kidding themselves slightly that it hasn't left a dent in any way, shape or form. Mm. You know, it's, um, it's a highly impactful thing to go through, but you can only keep yourself, as you so rightly said, seven years is your shelf life. Like a, like a premiership footballer has got a, a shelf life as a Roman commando on ops on the go. You've only got so long in you before, before you're going to, you're going to have to either, promote yourself out of that washing machine cycle, get yourself out of that or, or leave because you can't maintain that. You're only human. And you said you did thought, was it four years in? Uh, like, that, pool. that pool. Yeah. Uh, that. I mean, I mean the rehabilitation stuff. Oh, the Naval Recovery Service Center, mm. HMS Drake. Yeah. So you get given your own room, Z type per combination with like a little key card, like, like being in a hotel, you could run the shower head 360 around the room and it'll all run into a drain in the middle. And you've got everyone there from people who are struggling with rare types of 
leukemia, blood conditions, um, cancer, um, fell down a submarine hatch, snapped their leg in, in the ladder. Guys, Marines like myself coming off tour with, with, with psychological baggage and, and physical trauma. You've got amputees, you've got everybody in a one-stop shop in one massive building. Head injuries. Um, that's why you've got to watch. They don't leave the hobs on in the when they're cooking in the communal kitchens, you know, because they don't know. Um, my short-term memory and my executive function out the window. I couldn't make it to the gym in the morning at zero eight with my water bottle, my ID card, and my wallet. I would lose any one of those or forget one of those, then run back to the corridor, then be locked out of my room, then have to go down the elevator to let the concierge let me back in. It was a constant battle. Mm. anything that started to really real turning point with me was when I started to, and I've written about this chapter in the book, bring the outdoors indoors. I started, so every weekend I was in my little woodland that I'd bought back in 2012 for my own sanity. Some blokes need a shed. I needed a little patch of woodland. And back then a little patch of woodland on a pokey little re-entrant on one side of a re-entrant um, with a stream running down the middle, going into the wider Chew Valley here in Bristol came to about 12,500 quid and that's because it was untouched <laughs> for about 40 years. It was, there was no paths. There was nothing. And just a lot of overgrownness and brambles to stick as your wrist and, you know, all kinds of stuff. But for me, that's what I wanted a blank canvas and somewhere to just disappear into with my thoughts and um, make a little fire and sit around it and kind of go through some of the processes of my rural upbringing um, out with, the, out with a shotgun on the chicken farm or whatever it is I was up to trying to catch a fox. By contrary, now I wouldn't dream of shooting a fox unless I absolutely had to. They're a beautiful creature and I'm a total hippie now. Like I've, I've totally, my mindset towards destruction and stuff like that is very different. Uh, so, yeah, and um, that's how it started. A feast fit for any king or queen. Beautifully cooked in a simple manner. Planking, using hardwood pegs driven through the grain of a softwood or softer wood and just manipulating the coals. Fresh, locally sourced vegetables. So like a woodland, surf and turf. And so I'd already had this thing to kind of go back to between the tours to keep me on the straight and narrow, along with the incredible force of nature that is Louise. Gave me a reason for being. and But I, even then I'd become overwhelmed. I'd become so consumed at that point. I was in a dark place. So I came off that last tour in the May, early May. Been diagnosed with complex, severe post-traumatic stress disorder. Signed off work. Got married 19 days later. Had to travel abroad. Struggled with getting on a plane, airport, dark, dark glasses on, capped at, you name it. I was not, not in a good place. Got through that and started my leave period. My leave period ended. The case conference had taken place between the unit I was at and Plymouth Pool, Plymouth HMS Drake and um, Royal Marines Pool. It had been agreed without doubt, doubt I'm, I'm qualified to go to this Naval Recovery Service Centre for extensive help. And Pool thought I was at Plymouth and Plymouth thought I was still at Pool. I was at home on leave until the darkest depths of December, one week before Christmas leave. But one particular very sad day, I was sat there in the dark, stroking the Labrador, all the lights off, and Louise was going to work on her shifts and coming back and not knowing what to expect. And I'd already pulled a couple of stunts, like disappeared down to the wood, drunk a litre of rum and woke up clutching this bottle with snow landing all the way around me, 
she thought I was dead, you know, all that kind of stuff. I just, just wanted to switch myself off. And, um, it was a very hard time, very hard time. And I reached out to the one telephone number in this entire phone that made any sense to me at that point was the psych nurse who had, who I had trusted enough to get the process to start. Rang her. She said, how are you getting on? Hi. Oh yeah. How are you getting? I said, I'm what's happening with me. I'm still on leave. I'm still, I'm stuck at home. I'm, but, you know, I'm getting paid every month, but like, she was like, Oh my God, I'll get back to you. I'm so sorry. Please answer the phone. Promise me you'll answer the phone in one minute. I'm going to call you right back. Then there was a load of emails that she CC'd me in between them. It obviously been a massive, massive, uh, I'd been left. So I was about that close to being a statistic and I was within a day, they were inviting me down to, um, get my room started a week before Christmas leave 2015. So I started my recovery process officially in 2015, but from 2014, I'd been downgraded, written off. And so, and then I left in the other side of 18. So it, uh, it took a lot longer to, to get, to get into the crooks and, and I st- still never divulged or spoke about the more interesting aspects of the work I'd been up to until the last week before leaving. Um, the psych guy was giving me the head Navy psych was giving me the, the spiel about, you know, you've done a lot of really good work. We've made some great yards here. We've definitely changed the way you feel about some things, blah, 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 blah. And I said, yeah. And I dropped the bomb on him that there was a whole other chapter of stuff. And he was like, why did you never tell me? And I said, because you are the system. I can't trust the system. I can't talk about this stuff. This stuff didn't happen. I can't talk about, especially not with you. So um, that was tricky. Then I went over to the Tills Transition Liaison Service, uh, which is now Op Courage, mental health um, program for veterans leaving the armed forces. Sadly for me at that time, I think I, I ended up with, because uh, in the, the world of mental health, you know, practitioners are burning out rightly as well as as obviously that the people that are sat in front of, because it's a hugely demanding, hugely demanding job. Um to, to to sit there in front of person after person six a day or whatever it is all with their own complexities and stuff and you know you are going to burn out for whatever reason i ended up with like either four or six practitioners inside of six months and i went this ain't working for me i have to keep starting again there's no stability here i'll carry on with what i'm doing in the woods and that has been the what the driver the whole way through so going back to the recovery center i was bringing in bits of wood carving spoons in my room at night time as my sort of way of slowing my mind down that one singular kinetic meditation, that process of just doing one thing and pushing out all the other noise. And so a lot of the practices and things that I do when I've, as I've developed this Woodland Warrior program, which is therapeutic activity, not therapy, um, is based on my own experiences of all of the things I have found to be the very most therapeutic in an order which takes the the person attending the course through a journey from developing their own personal skills towards coming together as a team, forming tribe. They don't know each other, the six of them, for a whole weekend. That's their first tip, toe into the water with us. And then from there on in, they're into the, they've come through the funnel. They've, they've invested in themselves. They've got off the sofa, stopped looking at the world through the letterbox, and then I invest back in them. And we we have a whole small holding now that we've got them involved in. We've got dry stone walling, uh, hedge laying, um, conservation-based days, planting trees, 
uh, cooking underground using hot stones and hungry pit, got all kinds of stuff jacked up. They come along and they pick and choose their days and use the Woodland Morrow program as a handrail uh, in their recovery pathway. And all the meantime, we are signposting, checking in with them, a degree of mentoring, uh, making sure that things are moving along. And so we've had a huge success rate with that. It's great. But you can only help a small amount of people go a long way, as opposed to sending 22,000 veterans mountain biking in Wales for a day, touching people on the head with a magic wand. Um, Mm. So it's all about statistics and getting lots of money in. Doesn't mean anything to me. So, So, yeah. How did Hidden Valley Bushcraft come come around? Was there a point we thought, right, let's... (laughs) There we go. That patch can only be earned. You can't buy this. That's given to people who have interacted with us in some way that has helped us to either share our story or has helped us to um, to, to, to better the lives of others or, or veterans who have come in and, and, and invested in themselves and have and quite rightly so deserve, deserve a patch like that. And, you know, they've, they've worked for it. They've spread wood chip on the path, paying it forward for the next group that come through. They've planted trees. They've me- mended and fixed areas of, of uh, riverbank that have fallen away. They have done put up owl boxes, bird boxes, bat boxes. They have recorded the uh, the river life of the river chew uh, with these little clay animal traps. Okay, so looking at the track and sign left in the clay traps to denote whether you've got otter or mink, whether you've got uh, water voles, um, uh, bank voles, all kinds of things going on, and then sending that information back up to the Bristol Avon and Rivers Trust. You know, there's a whole world of stuff for them to throw themselves into and be part of. Um, and we, you know, they 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 dutifully earn these. Uh, some of them call it the Goldsmith Gulag because there is an element of physical doing something on day two as they do their team task. Okay. Um, and regardless of what level of injury you've got, I remember one guy really stands out to my mind, a uh, really lovely chap, um, Dave. He's got a battery pack in the lower part of his lower back. Um, as a result of an IED explosion, and he can turn the power and the, the feeling off to his legs at night time, so he can actually get some sleep. This thing like cuts in, and so of course he's not going to be able to maybe like lift and shift tons and tons of wood chip and, and and all these kind of physical activities. But he sat straddling a huge willow tree that I had felled across a ditch and turned into a into a bridge, and he was there with a hammer and nails, putting all the chicken wire in, making the the walkway. You know, they they just naturally, regardless of rank, regardless of regiment, regardless of emergency service background, they all just fantastically have this incredible energy. At that point in the course, they've all, all the qualifying speakers by and large been done. They've worked out who's who. They understand that people in glass houses don't throw stones and they're all there together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just beautiful. It's beautiful to watch. Where do they actually st- um, stay, Nick, in terms of accommodation? In the woods. So I teach them how to put up a, a rope and a tarpaulin because I want them to go to bed part of that woodland and wake up part of that woodland, not just take their meds, zip up the tent, disappear. So they have these like we bought 12 or 13 high end fishing camp beds that come out um, with a nice mattress because obviously with stress comes musculoskeletal issues. We know that. You know, the neurofascial material around the muscles is often tightened and that's all being driven by the software up there, which is running a program so upper thoracic very tight hips are very tight and that's without any injury on top of that so they've got to have a good night 
More often than not, we get at least one or two that have the best night's sleep they've had in years. That's an amazing thing to hear. There is no timing the next day. So that's an important thing. They go, oh, what's the time into bed? They're like, press, I can hear them peeping at their watches because they still live by this, some of them. And they go, oh, what, what time are we up for tomorrow morning? I said, when you're all up, you're up. And if not, I'll just need your tea or coffee preference and I'll bring it to you by your bedside. You know, then we'll have breakfast together over the campfire and then we all learn how to sharpen a knife. And then come back down on myself. So I'm doing lots of smaller, sharper movements this time because I've got a much smaller knife and I'm I'm trying to keep up the same sort of speed at which I'm maintaining my blade now. We'll just double check that again with these <laughs> more bald spots for my forearm. So the knives they've been using on day one then get resharpened so that they've got very little use on day two and they're good to go for the next course. Everybody comes together to create a flavour for, for that for that course. Mm. And then once they're in the winner's enclosure, they're on the secret what, the, uh, Facebook group and all the rest of it, which they can use as a forum if they've got any problems or snags or questions. Um, we can then advertise the days for those for that group of people that are already in. Hey, who wants to come learn how to dry stone walling on the edge of the Mendips for a day? And out of the three, 400 people, there's going to be six that are like, yes. So we put on lunch and all the rest of it, pull up in a big, big barn, big dry area, set out the military tables, <laughs> set out the teas and coffees, uh, hand them over to the SME for the day who's going to teach them the particular skill. So it could be a champion hedge layer. It could be whoever. Uh, then I'm on there on site to mill about. But it's very chilled. It's by then all of that initial worry and stress has gone and they all understand that even though they're meeting six, five brand new people again, they're all people that have been on that initial weekend. Mm. So there's shared kinship. And it's just lovely. It is lovely to are, see. Are they all former forces or is it? Uh, I've got a lot of people from Avon and Somerset Police. Um, Metropolitan Police have been buying into it quite heavily, which has been really good to see good level inv investment of people. Um, you know, uh, not so much the fire service. They've kind of been a bit, for whatever reason, they've not really taken to it. The ambulance service, yes and no. I've had quite a few paramedics recently. Um Lots and lots of mixed RAF, Army, Royal Navy. Um, very awesome things started happening last year where we started seeing active service personnel coming on. So people who are in the sort of personnel support groups down in the Royal Navy side of things. Navy generally are quite forward thinking. Are sending people to come on the course to get a flavour for what it's like to have a mindset of being outside. Maybe for people who are probably more likely to be med discharged a year from then down the line. And so they understand what's available to them. I work with a lovely lady called Selena who helps me deliver those weekends. Um, she wears another hat in that she works for Safa yeah. uh, in a role where she's a sort of a researcher. So she's very good at um, being right on the button for what's available to veterans at what time and what services they can get. So if I say something and it's outdated, she's like, she looks at me, right. sit down. This is what's going on as of January. This is going to be available to you, whatever. So it's it's really good. Um, and she brings her own black background and flavour to that course. So yeah, mm -hmm. so together it's a it's a it's a a force for good. Hopefully, um, so much so. Talking to books, yeah, we made it into this. Oh my gosh, 
Queen's Jubilee official commemorative album, massive giant, great big book. Um, we were the double page spread of picture of us and what we're doing in there. So that is an one honor, one absolute honor mm-hmm. to be featured. But I know a lot of people uh, probably paid 15 grand to be featured in that book or however these corporate things work. But no, generally we were we were approached and of course we wanted to be part of it. So that was a that was a huge proof in the pudding, you know, proof of concept um, that you're making noise in the right corners and the right the right um, tempo and the right circles, so to speak. And what about funding, Nick? Because you know, getting any operation off the ground is tough. Hard, hard. Um, so that journey was, I run courses for my limited company, Hidden Valley Bushcraft. Okay. So whether I'm working with some of the austere schools or whether I'm taking CEOs of major defense companies away for a one-to-one thing, you know, a bit like Bear Grylls take somebody away and they pay for them. And then I, we go and do a thing. Um, or whether I'm teaching primary schools or whether I'm teaching whoever or wherever that is, that's limited, that has profit built into it. This is not for profit, which means I get paid my day rate and no more. As long as we cover food, fuel, all the bits you need to cover incidentals, I get paid my day rate. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my passion. Uh, and doing this allows me the breathing space to do this and drive this on now what happened was initially we ran those courses completely for free for the first couple of years and then um i still can't remember exactly who i need to thank for this possibly simon harmer uh double leg amputee medic um done a couple of ted talks i don't know if you've ever met simon incredible guy really really lovely one of life's good guys he i think it was him gave an intro to facebook uh and they were signing the armed forces covenant and it was the first chance someone given me to talk on a stage. And so I'm using one of Finn's torches, <laughs> just perfect microphone. Um, and so I, I had a chance to, to share some of my story, not quite the marathon I've done here for you, but you know what I mean? I was led by those with some questions and, but it was terrifying. It was underground in the Westminster Plaza in London all day underground for 11 hours, big blue screen, artificial light, uh, cameras, earpiece, um, microphone terrifying for me just really big um got through it did my best everybody said you were so relaxed up there i was sitting on my bad knee uh and the pain was keeping me really present and in the, in the moment without going off on a tangent so that's how i was actually doing that um and uh got through it and in the front row was a fund manager for the invictus foundation who then approached us and said i want to know more about this thing and then helped us uh, coupled with bringing Selena in to then really professionalize the product as it is today. So now we know how to do all the big impact reports at the end of every year for all our funders. So the Armed Forces Covenant Tr- Fund Trust, um, the Invictus Foundation, the Veterans Foundation, um, all those kind of people are people that have you know, backed us on some level and then we've delivered and then they continue to get behind us. Mm. Now, what I'm seeing this year is an awful lot of uh, – Charities that previously were moving in other directions now suddenly wanting to, I mean, just this week, I've had some some pretty big meetings with CEOs of major charities. Um, not quite sure why that is exactly, but, you know, sometimes you just, just go with it. Um, and that's great. So so we're, we're financially secure for all of next year for the Woodland Warrior Program. There are 10 weekends courses, those initial first weekends. I, I only do 10 a year now because it's quite heavy on me. 
that's six people's story brand new to us um potentially that is 60 new people to the program and then that allows me time to build in all of those other days to keep servicing and keep providing uh, for that community that we've created because it's not a it's not a one-stop shop like i said magic wand get you on a course all about stats and money onto the next one it's you know you, you've created this thing now you now have a an obligation to to, to uphold that and, and help these people through on their journey if it took me nearly four years in a neighbor recovery service center it's not a one weekend you know so um um, hence it's so multi you know hence we do lots of different things so is this yeah. av- available to if i use the word civilians is um it so i've done some mentoring stuff before where i've worked with uh youth offenders i've worked with um some quite poorly people um i have made the decision overall now to stick to the niche group which I feel I have the greatest level of impact upon. Mm. Um, if I was going to do stuff for the civilian world, it would be the sorts of videos uh, digitally that I created on a YouTube channel a little while ago, or if I was doing resilience speaking. So going to a place, giving a talk with a keynote message behind it, uh, about, you know, with, with an underlying massive underlying tone of resilience and you can turn this around and you can, you can come back from anything. You can start again at any point in your life and you can have an incredible level of function to the, to the one that you maybe are feeling now it is possible to turn around, you know, and it's got to start with you. So there's that huge, uh, powerful message that as long as you're human, it doesn't matter who you are. It didn't have to be a veteran or an emergency service worker. You could have, had a car accident and slid your car on the roof for five seconds. And every time you go to press the key fob, the door, you have a feeling of what that was like sliding along on the roof. There you go. There's a post-traumatic response, whether it becomes a disorder to the point where you never drive a car again. Now it's becoming a disorder. So that's the D PTSD, you know, and, and how do you overcome that? So there's an awful lot of services out there and they all have a very important place because no two people are different. You know, you could go see a hypnotherapist about a, um, about a problem or an issue you have that could tidy it up because the the three percent conscious mind that exists that is having this conversation okay underlying behind that is 97 percent of you is offline unconscious that has its own bias its own agenda that's operating in the background in that software okay and however you choose to tap into that and make a change or alter it or or better yourself there's no one size no hat that fits everyone but there is an environment, I believe, which works better and you're going to have like a 60% better success rate in whatever you do as long as you're spending more time out there because that's where you came from. So to me, that makes the most amount of sense. And Nick, tell us um, your book. When when does your book come out? March the 7th, I'm told, is the official release date. And that's from the Welbeck publishers um, who have dutifully taken us on and worked with us on this project. So um, I'm expecting to see it in Waterstones and all those kind of places. In fact, it's probably available in Waterstones now. It's definitely available on Amazon. Um, We'll get a link up on your, or you'll put a link in hopefully at the end of this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, How how was the process of... of writing um 
Well, as you can see now, I'm not scared to talk anymore. So eight hours of dictaphone later, um, that then gets put into a format um, that gets, sorry, that gets using a program gets put into words. Uh, and then you've got to go through and try and work through that into a, f- a format that has a flavor that a person can follow. Um, now, this was a little bit avant-garde in that I was told unofficially and not by Welbeck, I will say now, but by other publishing groups that won't be named. Uh, a female reader tends to be more of somebody who wants to go towards a self-help book in the outdoors. Fine, I get that. Generally, ladies are a bit more switched on than us um, in, in terms of wanting help and, and going to get help. The gritty autobiography, bullets, beans and bushcraft type, you know, the kind of stuff that's going on there um, and, and the, 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 the how and the why stuff that goes into the how I ended up so in the state I was in tends to be more of a male reader who who looks for that uh, graphic type gritty read. Putting something together which is aimed at helping people to help themselves using the great outdoors obviously needs an element of that to contextualize. So what you've got is almost a almost a two-part book. So it's autobiography, first part, and then the, the well, or the first third, and the rest is all self-help book using the outdoors. Lots of tips, hints, clips, little illustrations, things to go and try next time in your outdoors. Um, ways of bringing the outdoors indoors, um, all kinds of stuff. So, but all aimed at ultimately helping the the, the reader to use the outdoors to have a healthier and happier lifestyle as a guide. And Nick, if somebody wanted to come on one of your courses, if they're a you know a service person that's going through some struggles, how how would how would they do that? Um, so we've created a self referral. So you can go on to the woodlandwarriorprogram.org website and you can self-refer, fill out the form. Or you can go to your doctor and you should find it on your NHS social prescription service list. Okay, so they can prescribe that to you as a social prescription. That'd be another way into the Woodland Warrior. Um, They would be the two methods. So either self-prescribe or maybe go to to your doc and get them to help you with it as well. Safa, I believe, the main helpline in London, okay, they're probably also going to suggest us on one of their lists as an as an option or alternative. Um, who else is out there? A, a lot. I mean, it's really taken off. A lot of people are, are on board. Here's something interesting. This year, I had a group of mental health workers from Op Courage, Teals Transition Liaison Service, come on one of my courses. So that was incredible. I recognized one of the faces from when I was quite poorly as somebody I'd actually spoken to while I was down in Plymouth. And suddenly I'm teaching them all how to make spoons, carve, harvest materials, make spoons with my my message, my mental health message danced in, woven in around it all around the campfire, being flamboyant, jumping about from gesticulating and them all going home with a spoon. So Another real milestone for me that was today, uh, this year. That was amazing. Most notably, something right on the front of it here is the HVB patch. Now, bit of a bit of a thing with these. You can't buy them. We don't sell them in, in the shop online on our website. They have to be earned. You have to come here, be part of this, come on a course, come and get involved in some of the conservation-based activities we have here. You know, shifting wood chip, planting trees, whatever it is, to earn one. 
that's kind of pretty much how it goes or you need to be making such a contribution to our wider community and the outdoor community or well-being that uh, that it warrants warrants earning one so there we go nick before we finish i have to ask you fire by friction come on uh, what's the secret okay so it all depends on how you see it i guess the age-old question is is it a party trick or is it a tangible, viable skill? And it, it probably boils down to this. If you're in an actual survival situation, that is to say, don't know how you got there. You are driving along a big, long, raised road. And for whatever reason, you slip off the road. Your hands go through the steering wheel. You break an arm. That's now useless to you. And you, you fall off into the bank at the bottom. You manage to call for help with your phone. And you're going to have to spend a very cold night next to that vehicle or in that vehicle because you know the advice will be don't leave the vehicle uh whilst somebody gets to you from an outpost 200 miles away or whatever it is you now need to make a fire probably to stay warm otherwise you're just going to run whatever fuel is in that wagon to death running the heaters etc how do you start that fire and I, i'm just going to chuck it out there rule number one of the outdoors has to be don't be a dick carry a lighter but the whole fire by friction piece requires the ability and the knowledge to understand all of the types of wood that will or will not work to find them in their given state. If they're too soft and dead and pappy and they break down and the spindle will just turn to dust and it won't turn inside the half board. If the uh, paracord or cordage that you're using, having made woven shoelace isn't up to scratch, that may just break You've got to source all the bits. You've got to have the knowledge to make the carpentry, to make all the things at the right diameter, spin at the right speed, mm. right tempo, right amount of pressure, body position to get that to work. If we're talking about bow drill uh, method, and then you've got to have the tinder bundle ready made to be able to tip the ember into, to, to be able to blow that up successfully without blowing too hard and blowing the ember through the back or all the other things that can go wrong with that stage. And then have all of the the means to get this fire on next to it and the fuel and the necessary bits and pieces. So in terms of it being a, a survival thing, I think our ancestors probably had the knowledge to do it, but probably preferred to take the fire with them from place to place. You know, they would have carried the fire at all costs, not to have to run through the 70, 30, will this, won't this work under a wet deer skin uh, with saber tooth moggy prowling around outside let's be realistic you know it's um it's hard it's harsh brutal so hence i'm a big fan of the wilderness living skills where we are kind of focusing in on doing the right basics to a good standard like we did in the royal marines to not end up in a position where we're in a survival situation mm. and can't help it if it comes down on you but but again don't be a dick have a lighter on you it's, have, it's you, have you got a few lighters there uh, constantly, whenever I go out the door, I've probably got a lighter <laughs> in my pocket. I've got. A, Did you I've have got, an orange one? I usually have a bright red one. Normally, I have a bright red one. But this is my. I'm in my civvy rig right now. I'm in my jeans and a black t-shirt. So, yeah. But anything where I'm going in the outdoors, it wants to be the lanyarded or something because I drop them on the forest floor, and then just to look down and find it straight away is what you want. Mm. You know, I got, I got my bushcraft lighter. Is that one there? Look, it's got the. Uh... Oh, I'm loving the addition of the, uh, yeah, that is a great idea. Yeah. Mate, not just bushcraft festivals as well. You can have it around your neck. And the rule at the festival is 
you never lend your lighter to anyone because you don't get it back. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> love it. Love it. That's a trust test, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Oh, Nick, it's absolutely fantastic chat. Um, utterly you. fascinating, mate. Uh, what a rich... It's been a journey. Yes, it yeah. really has, isn't it? it, it yeah. uh, the, but, um, but thanks to that journey, I've got to meet... Uh, and hopefully inspire and empower other people like Helen Barnett, a mm. police officer who uh, you know. She's uh, been on the podcast. <laughs> awesome woman. Absolute warrior. Absolute warrior. Check out that. If, after you've listened to me waffle and you've not fallen asleep, check out that podcast and listen to that because she is just incredible. And from the emergency service personnel point of view, absolutely proves that there is a complete comparison and the cloth that is cut from those who go on to serve in the thin blue line or whatever colour line and our armed forces. Mm, Years yes. of work through and through. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Very, very. Um... So I was very fortunate to have her around that campfire at a time where just listening to her, because you've got two of these and one of these for a reason. Mm. Um, and I just thought if I could just, if she, if other people could hear her talk now, regardless of what she's, the way she was quashed and not listened to and her book was palmed off and everything the way it was in a male orientated world back in the, in the, in the police back then to, to how powerful and, and, and incredible her message is now uh, as a woman, amazing. And uh, I'm very fortunate to say I, I managed to, to introduce her to, uh, to Hugh Kerr and, and, and to, to other people. And she's just run with it. It's, it's her doing, you know, she mm. is, she's doing this, um, multiple Guinness world world records. Oh, you name it. She's doing it. Yes. So yes. that's the kind of people, that's an example of the tropic cascade of coming on the course. Um, not so much about showing the horse to the water and you can't make it drink and all that kind of classic metaphoric, but it's more about letting the horse, making the horse, helping the horse realize that it's thirsty in the first place. We're that kind of first step. Mm. As long as they're willing to come and meet me out in the woods, that's, I see that as, you know, they're, they're investing and then I'll, I'll invest back and we'll go from there. So, yeah. That's well, I hope to come and meet, meet you in the woods at some point. May, See, maybe bring my little man. That would be um, yeah, absolutely yeah. wonderful. I wish you all the best of the book. When it, when it comes out, come back on the show and let's give it another. Well, I'll be, I'll have one to hold up. and Yes. Yes. Oh, it's a, a massive congratulations as well. It's a big thing writing a book. It's a whole yeah, I never thought yeah. I would. Oh, I, wrote a a poem. Whole... I wrote a poem a couple of years ago, and it's called The Warrior's Order of March. Mm. Uh, if you type that into Google, it'll come up. And I wrote that while I was still in the recovery centre, just making that turnaround. And that is about Woodland Warrior Program and why I do what I do now. Mm. Um, but I thought that was it. And then this came along. Friends at home, we'll put a link um, for Nick's book below so you can pre-order yourself a copy. Uh, we'll put all all... Nick's links, in fact. So if any anybody struggling out there and uh, this is taking your interest, there you go. Uh, Nick, brother, absolutely brilliant. Stay stay on the line, incidentally, but just for the purposes of our recording, um, massive thanks for coming on the show, mate. Really, um, it's all good what you're doing because for me, bushcraft and, and being in the nature and even just grabbing a tent and going out and spending a night uh, away from the house is such a, you know, me and my son do it every, 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 
every year we've got our little spot in 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 the uh, in the woods and we go and we build a fire and we we, we take our wetsuits so we go for a, a swim and it, yeah it's yeah. It, it's 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 memories I hope he'll he'll look back on and well mate you will just look at the way your face is lighting up when you talk yes well it lessens my guilt from being in front of this fucking thing all all the time but yes friends at home massive love to you as well if you could please like and subscribe that would be absolutely wonderful and uh, let's get Nick back on the show uh, in the near future and uh, yes we'll see you next time thank you thanks gang bye Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.